Welcome to Beyond Synth. Please note, Beyond Synth is an explicit program and may contain inappropriate language. Listener discretion is strongly advised. Well, hey there. Welcome to the show. This is episode 133 of Beyond Synth, but more importantly, this is the first episode of season six. That's right. Fanfare. And uh, listen, guys, uh, we're doing it again, man, for another year. And happy you guys are listening. Happy you guys... Uh, I should have scripted something. On the show today is Dan Forden, who you might recognize as this. Toasties! That's right. Dan Forden is the toasty guy from Mortal Kombat series, but he's also basically the dude responsible for the music for the majority of the series. Uh, in the early days, he also did the sound as well. I'm a huge fan of Mortal Kombat over here. Uh, you know, whenever I chat with Marco, we're always talking about uh, old games, and uh, Mortal Kombat is one of those franchises I always talk about. Uh, Mortal Kombat 2 is like one of my favorite games of all time. And it was really cool to be able to talk to Dan Forden because he's been doing the music that whole time. Obviously, in the early days of Mortal Kombat, the team was really small. So there's lots of people sort of doing double duty. Like, I think, you know, like Ed Boon was like doing all the coding, and then there's Tobias doing the art, and then Dan Forden was doing like the sound and the music. And obviously, the series has moved on a lot since then, and the team has gotten a lot bigger. But uh, for the most part, when I was talking, Talking to uh, Dan, we talked a lot about the old stuff because obviously I have a uh, a special place in my heart for the early days of the Mortal Kombat franchise. I still buy every single Mortal Kombat game that comes out, but uh, you know, like a lot of games you play when you're a kid, sometimes there's there's very special ones, and Mortal Kombat 2 is just one of those games that's always been very uh, special for me, just because it uh, was just one of the best sequels ever made. It's just such a great game, and I love uh, I love Mortal Kombat. So we'll be talking to Dan later in the show. We also have a new segment starting this year. That's right. I don't think I announced this, but Florence Bullock, who, you know, she makes music as Glitbiter, and she was on the holiday episode of Beyond Synth uh, last show. She is joining the program in a new segment. We're still trying to figure out what the segment is, but uh, <laughs> she's she's going to be uh, coming on uh, every week and uh, talking about stuff. I think we're mostly like catching up on movies and TV and uh, things like that. And so that should be cool. And of course, we'll still be keeping it 80s with Marco Merrick and all that good stuff. Now, let's listen to some fucking music. All right. What do we got? Well, let's start the year off with some energy here. Uh, this is Arcade High from the album Kingdom. This is still, uh, well, this is 2016. All right, guys, come up with a new album. <laughs> anyway, uh, let's listen to this track. This is Badlands by Arcade High.
And that was Badlands by Arcade High. Of course, if you want to check out the times that uh, Arcade High was on the show, you can go into the back catalog of Beyond Synth. And also, if you want to support Beyond Synth, Beyond Synth has a Patreon. That's patreon.com slash beyondsynth, and you can help support the show. Like awesome $25 donors Clint Dowling and Gregorio Franco and Chris Dance. Uh, You guys are awesome. And uh, thank you for supporting Beyond Synth. And hell, let's thank Jacob Wick, too. He's a cool guy. He donates uh, $22.88 every month, uh, supports the show. And, of course, Frank Skinicki with the 1987. Man, you guys, for supporting the show, are uh, amazing. Uh, it really helps out. And, of course, the lovely Chris Elia Lane. Thank you for your support of Beyond Synth. It means a lot to me. All right, you know what? Let's go to Florence. We're getting caught up. Well, uh, how about this? This is a new segment on Beyond Synth. This is a cool thing. It's always fun to do cool new things. This is Catching Up with Florence, I think, depending on if we have a theme song yet, or uh, maybe we don't, but who knows? But hi, Florence. Hey, Andy. How's it going? It's going all right. How are you? I'm pretty good. Should I preface why you're here? I guess. Will that help you? Yeah, sure. Well, here's the deal. You know, for season six, you know, this is season six of Beyond Synth now, and I thought it would be fun to add a new segment to the show. And I don't want to oversimplify this, but we first chatted, even though, you know, you've supported the show for a while, and of course you make music uh, as well. We chatted on the Christmas episode, and, you know, it's it's been my intention for a while that I wanted to bring in some more voices into the show, and... When you said that you don't play video games, a weird switch went off in my head. And I was just like, you know what? She should be on the show because, you know, people enjoy when I chat with Marco. But Marco and I agree on a lot of stuff and we're fairly similar for a lot of things. And I was like, this is a great idea because this guarantees that the segment has to veer into different places. See, when I talk to Marco, it's very easy for us to fall into sort of the things we're interested in, you know? And that's it, really. It's it's a very simple thing. And I think you got a cool voice so that's that oh thanks <laughs> way to sell it man yeah <laughs> so um, yeah i think uh, what we what we talked about doing was actually something that i wanted to do personally but i realized that i just don't have the damn time was to get caught up on all this old stuff you know retro things and even like super retro things and I just don't have the time to do it. And then when I was talking to you when we weren't recording and you were talking about how this was something that you were actually doing, well, that's perfect then. So we can do this segment, Catching Up with Florence. You're getting caught up on like all these old movies and TV shows and stuff. And I thought we would talk about them. And there's no way this conversation can veer into talking about Nintendo 64. And that might be nice for the audience to know that I just can't bring it there. Yep. No way <laughs> at all. <laughs> Yeah, we'll we'll see. No, I feel like somehow this is gonna get go back to video games, even though I don't play video games. Mm-hmm. I'm awful at references, and like so many people make um, references to old movies and just just stuff that I've never seen. And like I feel like there's something that's totally missing. So you know, like when people say like, "Who are you gonna call?" Are you sitting there like, "What the fuck is that?" Oh yeah, I have no idea. No, I I know that reference. I got that Yay. one. Yay! 
<laughs> there's so many, so many like little other things. I mean, today I'm going to probably be talking about Star Trek because um, I'm watching Star Trek. That is the thing that I'm doing. If you know me in real life, you probably know that I'm like a really big Star Wars fan. Mm. And I've always kind of like shoved Star Trek to the back of my mind because, you know, that's like the rival of Star Wars. And like, I don't, I was never interested in Star Trek just because it was anti-Star Wars to me. Sure. So actually I had a friend who I convinced him to watch Game of Thrones and I felt kind of bad about it because I feel like I forced him into it. He ended up liking it, but um, but he told me to watch Next Generation Star Trek and I was like, if I'm going to watch start, like start watching Next Generation, I want to start from like the very beginning. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I started watching the original series of Star Trek, which I kind of thought, I was like, well, I don't know if I'm going to watch it all, but now I'm kind of on this mission to watch every single Star Trek thing ever, which is going to take me like 5,000 years because there's a lot of <laughs> Star Trek content. Um, yes. But I'm I'm actually almost done with the original series, which is 80 episodes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so it's been fun. Like, has this been a mission where it's like every day it's like, gotta watch two episodes of Star Trek? Or like, how has this been working? Not really. It's just kind of like if I, if I sit down at the TV, I'll probably put on a Star Trek episode. And I think I started, I forget when I started, but it's probably taken me about six months to get to this point. But I don't know, like 80 episodes. I feel like that's pretty good. I, I never have time to do anything, so I felt kind of accomplished and I looked looked at all the episodes that I had watched and I was like, wow, that's cool. <laughs> you need a badge or a medal or something. I know, seriously, Jesus. The thing about Star Trek is like all of the episodes are, um, they're all different, so it's kind of like... Self-contained? Yeah, self, thank you. Self, there's, that's perfect. So, um... <laughs> It's hard to binge because like stuff like, you know, Game of Thrones, like there's always a cliffhanger. You want to watch the next episode immediately. But with with stuff like this and it's like, you know, Twilight Zone, it's kind of the concept of like, well, okay, the episode's over. What do I do now? So, yeah, I've just been kind of going through them and it's been really fun. I like it. I like it a lot. Well, how about this? Mm Mm-hmm. We're going to listen to a track, and then when we come back, you're going to tell me all about classic Star Wars, or Star Trek, because, uh, yeah, Star Wars. <laughs> yeah, just, let's just talk about Star Wars now. Um, I, think I, threatened, yeah. I think I threatened to do a Star Wars segment on your show, Andy. This, that's what this is going to turn into. You know it. I'm fine with that, because I think uh, leading up to the months before The Last Jedi comes out on Blu-ray, and when I watch it again and try and figure out if I still don't care, well... I'm not as passionate. I know a lot of nerds on the internet are, are angry about Star Wars, and I, I am too, to a degree, of certain elements. But I don't... I didn't hate it. I, I don't want to retread territory that I've talked about. It's just, I, I didn't hate it. I just don't love it. Yeah. And um, But I need to I need to see it again. But how about this? We're going to listen to a song. We'll come back with Florence, and we're going to talk about Star Trek. And you can teach me some stuff here, because I, I've never actually watched a full episode of classic Star Trek, I don't think. Oh, okay. But I, I've watched sequences. I know there's a lot of episodes where they, they seem to be facing off against like clouds that have like you don't really see the enemy but it's like a weird cloud that yep. seems to like cause ominous problems for the anyways uh, here's a track uh, well this is a good one obviously Betamax put out an album last year and you should check it out because it's good after his little retirement for a few years uh, he came back with Archaic Science and here's a track called Party Favors featuring Mike McGee
That was Betamax with the track Party Favors featuring Mike McGee. And of course, uh, that track was brought to you by awesome Patreon donors, Fraser Davidson and Trevor Resnick and Polly Digital and Elias Garnier and Murat Ogute. Uh, you guys are all great. Thanks for supporting the show. And of course, we're back with Florence and uh, you have just completed watching the entirety of the original Star Trek series? Not the entirety. I have like 10 or 15 more episodes to go in the third season, but I was kind of just going to go over a couple episodes of the first season. I was going to start with the pilot episode, which was kind of like the weirdest episode because it just kind of blindsided me because it wasn't what I was expecting. Right. So in the pilot episode, it follows um, a guy named Captain Pike, not Captain Kirk, who is played by a guy named Jeffrey Hunter. And uh, like, I was confused because I'm like, isn't William Shatner in this? Because like, I had no idea (laughs) since I'm talking about a very like loved nerdy thing. If I say something wrong, please call me out because like, I'm not a Star Trek nerd. I don't know everything. I, I can say that about Star Wars, but not Star Right. No, I understand. So yeah, that that's my preface. So if I say something stupid, please just, you know, you can call me out. Are you talking to me personally or are you talking to the audience? I'm talking to anyone who's listening. Oh, fuck them. I don't want people calling people out. I'm going mean, to delete not, your comments. You're not going to call me out, Andy, <laughs> because you you didn't watch the sh- you didn't watch the show, so. Yes. But hey, I, I do know just... a lot about fucking Captain Cork and the uh, Starship <laughs> Enterprise. And anyway, go on, sorry. Spork. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so yeah, it, the first episode, the pilot episode follows um, a guy named Captain Pike. Sorry, I'm gonna I'm gonna spoil everything. So hey, if you're gonna if you want to watch it, sorry. It is 1966, right? Is that when that show was, started? It was a while ago, so there it is. But anyway, so Captain Pike is captured by these guys named Talosians from Talos Four, and they want to they want to study him in captivity and then breed him with this other human girl that they have, who is apparently the daughter of a survivor of a crashed ship, and then. The Talosians are like super smart. They have these bulbous heads and what they can do is they basically like alter people's minds. They can alter your perception of anything so you can see anything. So it's kind of like Jedi mind tricks on steroids. Vina is the girl. She's trying to convince Captain Pike to stay in like her. Um, basically, it's like San Junipero. That's a Black Mirror reference. That is a And yep, I'll tell you how you I know that because I just watched that episode for the first time yesterday. Oh, I'm so happy. I'm working my way through Black Mirror. That's exciting. Actually, that's funny you should mention that because uh, a lot of the Star Trek episodes that I've seen, it's it's like super Black Mirror. There are a lot of concepts that come up in Black Mirror as well. And this episode in particular, too. So this girl, Vina, is like trying to convince Pike to like stay with her in paradise in like the projections that these guys are uh, projecting in their mind. But then they, they think that they're like, oh, well, humans have this like they don't like captivity so they're too violent. So they let Pike go. And it turns out that Vina is actually, she's just straight up a survivor of this crashed ship. And what the Talosians did is they like rebuilt her and her, like she's actually this like mangled human, but they gave her the illusion of beauty. So she wants to stay on the planet with them. So like the whole, the whole idea of Star Trek is it's really cool. In this first pilot episode, there's a woman who is played by a girl named uh, Majelle Barnett. And she's a 
senior officer on the Enterprise. And interestingly enough, one of the reasons why NBC originally rejected this episode is because they thought that people would have a hard time grasping women characters in leadership roles. Mm. After this, they got rid of her character, but they kept women women in kind of leadership roles and kind of on the bridge on the Enterprise as well. So it, it's cool because it's kind of like this positive outlook of the future, very progressive for the 60s, which is really cool. I have a question though. When you said you started watching the show, you were expecting something and then it wasn't what you expected. I was confused because I was like, wait, these aren't the characters that I've seen before. Is the whole bridge crew different or is Spock's there, isn't he in Spock's the first there. one? Oh yeah, yeah. So Spock, Spock is there, but the whole bridge crew is jif- different in the pilot. I'm explaining this horribly. Is that ever <laughs> referenced again? Like, do they reference the original crew or do they just oh, sort of forget? Oh yes, they do. Okay, they do. And that's actually another uh, another episode that I want to talk about. So after the pilot episode, like the, the normal crew is like Spock, Captain Kirk, Scotty, Scotty, and then there's Mr. Sulu, there's Chekhov, there's Uhura, who's the communications en- engineer. She's like the one woman on the bridge. I think it's probably halfway through epi- um, season one. They have um, a couple episodes, which is, it, they're a two-part, it's a two-part story, which I don't think this ever happens again in the, the original series. And it's called The Menagerie, part one and part two. And we find out that Captain Pike, um, who's the guy from the original uh, pilot, he was in some accident having to do with Delta Rays. And he's now in a motorized wheelchair cone thing that he can like move with his mind and he can answer yes or no questions by like making a button blink. His mind is like very alive, but he's just in this like vegetable of a body. Um, so this kind of this is what kind of made me think of Black Mirror. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, because there there are a lot of episodes sort of like that. And just wait till we get to the fourth season of Black Mirror because that comes up a lot. Hey, you know what else comes up though? Yeah. We got to play some music. Oh. So let's uh okay. let's listen to a track and then we'll uh we'll, we'll keep talking about Star Trek. See, I'm learning a lot today. Okay. Am I learning a lot today? I hope so. I hope I'm doing it justice. Maybe not. <laughs> Well, here comes the song. All right, here's a good one. I'm starting the year off with uh, some tried and true favorites. And uh, let's listen to some Droid Bishop. Here's a track called Light Years.
And that was Light Years by Droid Bishop. He always brings the goods. Droid Bishop is cool. That track, of course, brought to you by awesome Patreon donors. Playmaker Media, Mike Shima, Ashley Keegan, Greg Smith, and fucking Slunks. And we are back here, of course, with Florence Bullock, who's explaining to me Star Trek and the first season of Star Trek. So we've got a different bridge crew. Uh, went to some planet to because uh, some aliens wanted to capture and Pike to like get it on with some mangled lady and then uh, and then we've switched bridge crews but Spock is still there and then now that captain off screen at some point got himself into a wheelchair is that correct that's correct All right. that's a, that was a really good summary I'm glad you got that from my like terrible description of everything mm. I'm a good listener <laughs> good job I like it. Okay, so Spock, who he served under Captain Pike, like we saw in the pilot episode, and he essentially mutinies and drags like the entire. He like gets Captain Pike, drags the entire Enterprise and its crew to back to Talos Four, and there's this like death penalty that they put out if you go visit Talos Four now. So everyone's like, why is why is Spock doing this? There's a death penalty. What's going on? So basically, he brings Pike back to Talos Four. So Pike can live on Talos 4 and like basically live in San Junipero with this girl, Vina. Right. So he can actually like move around and like or think that he's moving around. So they realize like, oh, you know, like everything just turns out okay because they realize that Spock is doing a good thing and he's off the hook and everything. So, so were these were these your favorite ones from the, the first season? Yeah, no, I, I definitely liked those and I liked that they reference like the, the callbacks to the other episodes. Like that, that was cool because they usually don't do that. My favorite one, though, was probably the second to last one, which is called The City on the Edge of Forever. Why does that sound familiar? Is that seen as like a classic episode? I feel probably. like I know that title. It, it probably is. And it's funny because I I didn't know that, but I, I right. think I've mentioned it to some people and they're like, oh yeah, that one. And I'm like, okay, awesome. It was my favorite one. Yeah. So, I mean, for this one, uh, McCoy, who's the doctor on the ship, he, he goes crazy because he like, he's treating somebody and he injects himself with this thing accidentally that makes him go crazy. And they were on, um, they were on this planet looking at this like portal thing and he jumps, McCoy jumps through the portal and he ends up in like United States 1940. 30s, right? And so then Spock and Kirk have to go after him. As soon as McCoy jumps through the portal, the Enterprise is like gone and they have no communication with him. And they find out that McCoy somehow jumps in the portal and alters time. And they're like, oh shit, like we have to go find him to like save the world pretty much because he did something and like now the Enterprise is gone. Right. They end up meeting this girl named Edith Keeler. And of course, like Captain Kirk is such a player. He falls in love with this girl. And they find out that this girl is kind of the key to everything. And what happens is that McCoy had ended up saving her life. The fact that she was still alive, she ends up starting a pacifist movement, which causes the United States to delay its entrance into World War One, allowing Nazi Germany enough time to develop a nuclear weapon and win the war. Right. So in the end, they have to like they have to let her get McCoy to not save her and she she has to die so the big the whole my favorite thing of the episode was the line Edith Keeler must die which is something that Spock says and I was like man I should write a song that a song called that because it just, it's just it's awesome I'm in love with Edith Keeler Jim Edith Keeler must die 
like this episode was definitely not a happy ending and I mm-hmm. like that you know they they don't always have happy endings to me shows start to get boring once i start to notice their patterns mm-hmm. you know so w- when they can shake out of a pattern it's always like a shocking thing the weird thing is for me though you know speaking of black mirror any show can have a pattern even if the pattern is cool and so sometimes that start that starts to happen when i watch several like kind of black mirrors in a row is where i'm like okay well the whole point of this show is there's always some sort of morbid twist mm-hmm. So sometimes I start just assuming like, well, there's no way this is going to be good. So if it starts to like head in a direction like, well, maybe there's a happy ending to this. Mm -hmm. I'm just sitting there like guessing like, well, it's not going to be. So what's going to happen here? Is this person going to be dead? Is this person going to be hooked to a machine? Uh, Is, you know, the episode going to fade out and it turned out it was all in this person's head? You know, like stuff like that. Like that's where my brain goes now because Mm -hmm. I'm like... Which actually surprised me about that San Junipero one or whatever, because I think that's like the only one I've seen so far that actually like had a happy ending. Yeah, that's totally true. I think up until that point, yeah, that's the only happy ending one. Well, listen, we we got we to gotta listen to another song and then maybe we'll wrap this up for today. How about that? Okay, sounds good. Is that cool with you? Yep. <laughs> All right, let's listen to another track. This is a great one by Le Matos. They came on the show last year for a two-parter and they make uh, really fun tunes. And this was, I think the remix, this was their live version of the track. 58 Minutes to Live, and I think it's called 58 Minutes in the Pool, which is the live version by Le Matos.
know some things that you don't know. It's going to be very difficult for you to understand it. Five billion people died in 2 with the track 58 minutes in the pool in brackets live version uh, and that's a cool track that was of course brought to you by awesome patreon donors Joshua Evison Willow Winfield and Colin Bennett you guys make this show possible and of course we're here talking to Florence who has just watched all this Star Trek and she's teaching me about Star Trek yep so what's your ultimate uh, if we could summarize today's thing so you uh, you've been asked to watch Star Trek The Next Generation, but you don't do any job half-assed. Mm-mm. So you decided, the only way I'm going to really enjoy this is if I watch the original series. So what was your takeaway from watching season one of Star Trek, the original series? I liked it. I, I was surprised that I liked it as much as I did. So when you watch old stuff, it's cheesy, right? Like, of course, I'm going back to Star Wars, but like original Star Wars, it's cheesy as fuck, you know, like I can make fun of it forever. But like at the end of the day, it's kind of cool that years ago there was more of a sense of like leaving, checking your disbelief at the door. There's not a lot of that 
that happens today. Yeah, no, you also you also get into a groove. I think there's several things that happen. One, once you're in the groove of a show, mm-hmm. you just get used to production values and things like that. So yeah, at first it can be a little weird, but once you're in, you're in. Yeah. I found that with like a lot of shows. I mean, look, I'm a classic Doctor Who fan, which is notoriously like the cheapest show ever made. Like it's it's very very cheap. It's surprisingly cheap. Mm-hmm. Like you can watch Star Trek and you think that's cheap. If you watch some classic Doctor Who, you could be blown away by just how cheap a show can be and still be on television. Mm-hmm. I mean, like, there's literally, like, aliens where you can see the fucking zippers of the costumes. You can see fucking crew members in the background sometimes. And, like, there's silhouettes, like, opening the future doors and stuff. It's shot on, like, video cameras. Sometimes, like, the lasers don't even match up to the guns because they're all doing it live. But w- once you're there, you're in the groove. And I think now, new shows are so meta and everything has to be so cool and referential mm-hmm. that, like, you just can't do a straightforward adventure show. It's like, if you do, you have to be making movie references so people get what you're aiming at, you know? It's like, if you did a time travel movie now, all the characters have to be making jokes like, hey, this is like Back to the Future. You know, this is like Bill and Ted's or whatever. Like, you can't just do a straightforward adventure show. And I think that's why I like these older shows and, and movies and stuff is because they just they're just straightforward. Everything now is so meta. Everything is overcomplicated. Like even movies that you think should be simple, you know, where it's just like this is just some stupid action film. Like why is there like 18 double crosses in this thing? Like just have a good guy. And that's why I like 80s action movies and stuff because there's just this simple charm of like they kidnapped Arnold's daughter and now he's going to go kill them all. And he's called John Matrix and he's a commando and he's going to use big guns and when he gets his daughter the movie's over and that's it and it's like it's satisfying you know there's something satisfying about that just a straightforward fucking narrative yeah and and now everything's so complex and requires so much anyway that's it yeah cool (laughs) (laughs) yeah no i think like the thing about star trek is it's surprisingly complex too and plus like the episodes are all self-contained so you know that's it it's funny because like sometimes i'm like how are they gonna wrap this up in like five minutes and they they wrap it up in five minutes everybody died yeah exactly easy (laughs) well listen so what's your what's your final verdict then Uh, star trek season one thumbs up thumbs down thumbs up cool all right well listen you have a lovely day thanks and that is all for florence this week yep (laughs) (laughs) thanks for letting me explain star trek to you (laughs) <laughs> it's good. It's useful information. I'm going to I'm going to put this in my brain. Okay. <laughs> All right, I'll talk to you next time. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> All right, and that was Florence Bullock. Nice to chat with her. I should point out that there's some new Patreon donors this week, and I'm going to butcher your name, and I apologize. Junie Pieponen, Pieponen, Junie Pieponen, Jun, okay. <laughs> I think this person is from Finland. So J O U N I, Junie, Junie. You think it's said like that? Hey, listen, you listen to the show. Tell me how to pronounce your name or else I'm going to keep pronouncing it incorrectly. And I don't want to do that because that makes me sound like a jerk. And of course, Power Loader. That's not new, is it? Anyway. And then there's Robert James Hanks. Thanks for donating to the show, dude. And Cougar Bait. What do you suppose Cougar Bait is? 
like little like giblets you put out that like attract like older ladies. And then there's Polar Wildcat Studios. Thank you guys for donating to Beyond Synth. Wait, Star Nomad, is that new? Wait, how many new donors is there this week? <laughs> I don't know what's going on. Uh, anyways, guys, listen, thank you uh, for being new donors to the show. Of course, if you are listening right now, you know that we used to have a Patreon section of the show, and I'm not doing it anymore because it always took too long, I think. But I'm always really appreciative of the people who donate to the show, so let me know if you're happy with the new way of me just sort of announcing a few names after every track. However, that does put me in a weird position because people who donate $6.66 which is also known as the Donation of the Beast, it doesn't really have a place anymore in the show because it used to be in the middle of the Patreon segment. So I'm still figuring out what I'm going to do with that. So how about we just go to the Donation of the Beast right now? This is the Donation of the Beast. All right, these are all the people who donate six dollars and sixty-six cents every month because they are compelled by the dark forces within us all. Of course, there's Renton Brax, Lucas Ceballos, Blake Peterson, Carm, Straylight, Till Wild, Ken Giroux, Moose Nucks, Orlando Rodriguez Neef, Jesse Bishop, and Eli Arson. These guys are evil, but they're also cool because they donate to Beyond Synth's Patreon, which helps the show coming out on a regular basis. And of course, Max Hutchings, keeping evil at bay. Now let's listen to a track and then we'll go keep it 80s with Marco. So here is the awesome Magic Sword. You know I love Magic Sword and you can always go back and listen to the old episodes of Beyond Synth when Magic Sword was on the show. But in the meantime, here is an awesome track. This is Uprising by Magic Sword.
And that was Uprising by Magic Sword. A cool track that is. Of course, that's brought to you by my lovely $5 Pattersons this week who donate to patreon.com slash beyondsynth. There's Ethan Hennings, Daniel Dexius, Star Nomad, Michelle Vasquez, Tim Ross, Neon Knox, Jared Glenn, Damian Rudies, Ross Pentland, Josh Murphy, Hala, Phil Clothier, Lee McConnell, Zychorax, and Brad Neiman. All right, let's go and keep it 80s with Marco Merrick. Marco And we're keeping it 80s with Marco Merrick. Uh, hey, Andy, how you doing? We finally got everything working. Fuck me. <laughs> yeah, so the audience doesn't Jesus need to know that we just Christ. spent uh, an hour and a half. <laughs> oh, fucking hell. Uh, it's your damn program that's fucking with it in the end. I thought it was me, but it's it's not me, it's you, Andy. <laughs> <laughs> Can I just change my chairs? i got a squeaky chair. It's getting real bad. Yeah, man. All right, here we go. Just mid-show. There you go. All right. So how you been, mate? You got some uh, some strange weather going on there. You had fucking... It's been freezing, and then everyone's complaining that it's been hot. So what the fuck? Yeah, man. Well, we just had a flash freeze. So that's when it goes warm, and then everything melts, and it rains, and then all of a sudden it freezes. And then it uh, gets very slippery, because everything is ice. Oh, shit. So what does the snow look like? So if it starts melting... Because I know what snow looks like. I've been at, you know, been snow. <laughs> Like, it snows, and then it just sits on the ground. But what is it? Does it look different when it, like, melts, and then it freezes again? Well, it kind of looks like, you know when Sub-Zero does that move where he, like, freezes the ground, and then the person on yeah. top of it goes like, whoa, 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 like that? <laughs> yes, of course I know that move. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's a lot like that. That's what flash freezing ah, is. Ah, right, right. Okay, yeah. cool. Where cool. I am right now, it, it snowed. There was, like, five feet of snow. Fuck. Most of it actually did melt, but then it, underneath it's all the dirty kind of slushy stuff. Oh, so when it freezes, it just, you look down and it looks like slush, uh-huh. but then you step on it and it's solid. So it still has like all like the boot prints and tire track prints through it and stuff if ah, it's like super slushy. disgusting. Or it will do the, uh, if it just lightly rained and then froze and so everything is just sort of like coated with a, uh-huh. then it literally does look like Sub-Zero just fucking froze the place. Like it actually looks like that. There'll be like kind of like icicles like hanging down from, uh, you know, like the uh, the roofs Ooh. and from the like the door handles and things. Like on our van, you know, like the handle to open the door has like all these little tiny icicles like coming down from it. <laughs> and it literally looks like picture like Mortal Kombat the movie when some zero like grabs the front of Sonya's gun and does like the ding ding and like the oh, front yeah. freezes off like that's what the door handle looks like that's so cool man yeah I mean that so part's yeah. cool the bad part's all the cars that fucking fly off the road but I mean like it's oh, Jesus. <laughs> the, the Sub-Zero reference is always nice <laughs> yeah well we're the complete opposite here I mean we got uh We've got 37 Celsius today, which is uh, 100 Fahrenheit, pretty much. So yeah, it's a bit warm here at the moment, Andy. Well, it's uh, it's summer for you, isn't it? Yeah, I'm sweating my jocks off here. Um, <laughs> <laughs> good thing uh, we don't have video at the moment. So, uh, so then it's the season two, eh? The start of season two. How exciting! I'm oh, season two. Oh my god. The start of season five, is it? This is season six. Six. Yeah. Oh man. my god. 
Wow. I mean, it's technically wow. like season two for you. You're the longest running Seaswife show ever, aren't you now? I, I believe. I mean, surely you've got that one. This must be. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, because yeah, cause Steve's not doing uh, Power 80. I mean, he hasn't done it in fucking ages, has he? The uh, Project Friday? No. I think. Yeah, he's uh, he's no. been on an extended leave. And what else? Yeah. A lot of people pop in and will do shows for a while, and then they find out that it's actually like a lot of work, and then they don't. Yeah. I mean, how long did you do Synthetic Sundays for? Three years, but I had a lot of breaks as well, because, you know, like I went to the I went to the States you know, a number of times, so I had a big break there, like for over a month each time, and then uh, I had a stint with work where I was working a lot of overtime, so I had to have a break there, and then in the third year, well, I, I mean, I gave it up, and then I did my farewell show, which was like fucking nine months later, so there's a gap there, I guess you could say. Yeah. So really, for two, <laughs> really for two years, Years, yeah. uh, for two years, I I, I, uh, I did it, yeah. And it's a lot of work. Like, uh, there's a lot oh, of fucking, fucking work. Yeah, bloody earth. I literally had no life. I feel know, bad though because like. I was looking at my SoundCloud uh, messages because, you know, people send me music to my Facebook, like Mm. my personal Facebook, my, you know, the Beyond Synth Facebook, Twitter, SoundCloud, email. So I I just sort of alternate where I'm going to respond or listen to, or Mm -hmm. fuck, I I alternate where I'm going to (laughs) read. You know, so it might be I read the SoundCloud messages this time around. And then three weeks later, I go and clean out Mm -hmm. my Twitter messages. And then, uh, so then sometimes it's like two months. Like I was looking at SoundCloud today and there's people who I haven't responded to and they sent me messages like two months ago. And I'm like, I feel bad because it's just like, I'm not like some fucking big shot who like doesn't respond to messages. It's just like, they're coming from so many different places that like, I can't, that's what she said. I can't, uh, I I need a secretary. What what did Um, she say? I said too many things there. What did she say? No, nothing. Don't worry about it. Uh, (laughs) Coming from so many different places. Is that it? Was that it? Okay. Yeah. yeah, That's what I just wanted to make sure Um, I got it right. I didn't know if it was like, (laughs) um, yeah, well, I had always had the same issue too. I just, ugh, it's fuck. And, and, and it's funny because I still get a lot of messages. But, oh man, I love your show. Can you play this on there? And I'm like, dude, I'm not even doing my show. Like, I'm not even bother <laughs> responding. If you, if you can't even fucking, if you can't even fucking work out that I'm not doing the show yet, you're obviously not into the show. So I'm not, you know what I mean? It's just, fuck, come on, man. Yeah, so I don't even respond. It's like, fuck off. I mean, that's kind of rude, but, you know. Um, but look, I've always had issues with responding, too. I'm like, I'm on Facebook, and then I've got, like, 20 fucking messages about this album, and this, like, this big essay about it's going to be released here, this is going to happen, and I'm like, God. And then um, same with SoundCloud. Same with me, man. Like, I'll go, like, two or three weeks, and I'm like, oh, shit. I'm going to start responding to everybody, you know? But uh, like you said, your you re- secretary is the way to go, really, isn't it? I basically do it in blocks, you know, where I just say, okay, I'm going to go on yeah. SoundCloud now, and I'm going to spend the day, literally, <laughs> responding to messages. <laughs> and, like, that's what I do. And it's crazy, because there's nothing really to show for it. That's the that's the tough part. Mm-hmm. But listen, this is a music show, season six of Beyond Synth, keeping it 80s with Marco Merrick for a new year. Mm-hmm. So uh, play me some music, my friend. Okay, I uh, I got some good songs together this, this time around. I got uh, so Jay Vintage. He's got a new track. I don't know if you've heard of him. I haven't before this. And uh, the track is To The Limit. This one's awesome, Andy. All right, cool, man. Well, this is fucking Jay Vintage with the track To The Limit.
And that was To The Limits by J Vintage, Marco's first pick of the week. So, that is cool. How was your holiday? Yeah, it was all right. I guess pretty boring. Didn't really get up to much. Yeah, just just taking it easy, mate. Keeping it 80s, you know. <laughs> so, what'd you do? Did you did you get caught up on any fucking games or anything? Uh, not really. I haven't been playing that much games lately. I got a bit on my plate, I guess. It's hard. You know, when you got a lot going on, it's kind of hard to just sit down and, and actually get engrossed in a game. Mm. I have been playing a little bit of... Um, I, the other night, up for about three or four hours, I played Super Mario World. I haven't played that in fucking ages. Uh, it's just, you find them online for free, emulators, and um, I just played that. I got I got pretty far. You know what I'm actually going to try is mods, like uh, Super Nintendo mods and stuff, because yeah, yeah like uh, fucking Lou sent me a link to, I think it was like a colorized version of Super uh, Super Mario Land 2 for the Game Boy and I guess someone modded a colored version of it mm-hmm. and then I, it, it just struck me like there's a lot of classic games that I go back and play and I remember them and I play them for a few minutes and then there is obviously there's a huge community of people who mod mm-hmm. classic games so I just thought why not check out that like just check out more mods and I found like a folder on one of the ROM sites that's just a whole shitload of mods for uh, Super Nintendo games so there's like uh, you know Super Mario Land mods and uh, Metroid and all sorts of stuff. I guess like new tracks for Mario Kart and shit like that, like Mario Kart uh, Super Nintendo ones. So mm-hmm. I tried some out. Some of them are better than others. Some of them are kind of cheap where it's like the game is the same, like the opening, everything is the same. But then when you start playing, then they like kind of tweak the levels slightly. And then some of them they put more work into. And mm-hmm. it's interesting. Like it's interesting to try them out. Well, it, it keeps it fresh. I mean, because you, you, especially after a while, you kind of know everything is. It's especially games like GoldenEye or Mario World. You know, obviously, I'm I'm sure both of us have played it through it a number of fucking times. It's kind of just imprinted in your brain. You know where all the enemies are. You know where everything is. So once you get through the novelty of playing it again, you know, a couple of hours, you kind of go, ah... Yeah, I don't know, you know, so it's not to have a few changes for sure. It's all about the experience though too, because I know like when I used to replay Zelda Ocarina of Time, that was the big game I used to replay about once a year. Mm-hmm. That used to be like a routine for me, almost like in the way that, you know, every year I'd make sure I watched like Scarface and Heat and, uh, you know, there's just certain movies on the list that I'd watch mm-hmm. once a year. And then once a year, I would fucking, you know, play uh, Zelda for, you know, like one or two weekends. And so there's something comforting about knowing where everything was. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like I'm not a speed runner. Like I'm not that kind of player. You know, it's it's just nice. But, uh, you know, it's, it's cool when, when people shake things up, man. And what else did I play? I played Punch-Out as well. I haven't played that in ages. And I fucking still can't get past... That fucking soda Popinski, man. God, that guy pisses me off. Still, it's like, fuck. It was really good. I started getting angry, man. I tried like fucking 10 times. Because you can save, you know, you save it just before, like you got the save state or whatever, and you just reload it every time, so you don't have to fuck start again. Mm. But uh, I can't beat him, man. Fuck. I've got to watch a video on it or something. I love how, how classic games can be so hard that there is some that even when you have the ability to save state... It's still really fucking hard. <laughs> I know, right? Like I remember yeah. like playing Batman Returns for the Super Nintendo and I was fighting the penguin at the end, like the last boss. Mm-hmm. And I literally had to save state like every footstep I took. Like he was so fucking annoying. Like just his pattern was so frustrating. Yeah. And it got to the point where I was literally like you know, sometimes with certain emulators, you can you can program it so, like, you know, the L button can be your save state and the right button can be your, like, load the save state. Right. And so I, w- I would set it up like that so I could, like, you know, load my game, save my game with just the click 
click of my finger instead of having to go to the keyboard. And I was doing that constantly. And then sometimes there are some games where I'd be loading and saving so quickly that I would fuck up and then accidentally <laughs> and then accidentally save, save myself in a shitty situation because oh, you're clicking constantly and all of a sudden like you're in playing Mega Man and I do a fucking save state where I'm like over a hole like dying and then just fucking no like oh it's so frustrating yeah that's fucked that's fucked I've got so many save states I'm like because each time I do it now it'll like you could like save whatever game and then be like in brackets one and then each time it's two and three and I've got so many fucking uh, I've got a folder full, full of them all yeah. <laughs> yeah well speaking of fucking uh, no there's no way to segue out of this do you want to play me another song <laughs> sure sure you, it's all you have to say uh, I hate pronouncing this one but I think it's acidulate I don't fucking know with a track called uh, Electropolis yes Electropolis cool man well let's listen to it this is fucking Electropolis by acidulate
And that was a Sigile with the track Electropolis. And that's Marco's second pick of the week. I would say a Sigile because it's got the exante goo on the end, on the E. Yeah. And that makes the A sound. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I don't know. I don't know how else to fucking say it, man. I mean, it's uh, okay. Yeah, whatever. Sorry if you're, if you're listening, Acidulay. Sorry for getting your name wrong, but uh, it's a great track, though, nonetheless, mate. Yeah, man. No, I like fucking cool tracks. <laughs> that's it. That's, uh, that's the best I can do. <laughs> is that it? I don't know what to say to that. Well, I can't think of anything funny. The cool thing is, um, I figured we'd bring it up, because obviously uh, this is the first episode of the new season of Beyond Synth. You know, we're, we're changing things up, and, you know, obviously, like, uh, Florence is a part of it now. And, um, and also, today, and since I don't really talk about games with Florence... Mm-hmm. Um, but we talk about games. Uh, it might be cool to at least talk about Mortal Kombat since uh, today is uh, the episode with Dan Forden, Ooh. who is uh, obviously the, the guy who makes the music for the Mortal Kombat series. And you and I have talked about Mortal Kombat 2 a lot oh, yes. uh, on this show in the past. So, Oh, yes. I love it. It's my favorite gaming series, uh, fighting yeah, yeah. series. Mortal Kombat's just, just the one for me. I mean, I, Street Fighter was cool to start with. I really don't like the direction it went in. Tekken's always been pretty good. But Mortal Kombat is shit. I mean, it's it's great gameplay, plus it's got that fucking gore, you know? It's got that adult fucking uh, element to it, which as you get older, even as even when I was young, I liked that too. It's like, oh my God, you can rip the fucking head off. You, can rip the head <laughs> off, you know? It's like, how cool is that, you know? It yeah. really fucking was. Yeah, I just thought we'd bring it up. He's on the, he's on the program today, and so, I mean, we... We talked a lot about just the history of Mortal Kombat, and I was, you know, playing the tracks to him. I guess people sort of hear mm-hmm. that when it, when it happens, but I was sort of playing my favorite uh, bits of music from the Mortal Kombat series, a lot of which were from the first three. As I say to Dan, like in the interview, uh, my favorite compositions of his, most of them come from like Mortal Kombat 3. Like I think Mortal Kombat 3 had like the coolest music of the series, but uh, there's still a lot of cool tracks in the... Uh, in the first few, I even played him some of like the Genesis versions, uh-huh. although he wasn't really responsible for the uh, for the uh, localization. But uh, yeah, Mortal Kombat Two is the shit too. I can't wait to to move to the US finally. I can actually fucking play against you and, and, and show you how it's done. You know, because um, we tried playing it. I think we talked about this before. We tried playing it online, but the ping is so fucking bad because we're so yeah, far apart. I mean, yeah, we were trying to. Um, what was that? We were using the uh, the arcade emulator and trying to connect that way. And since you are in Australia, it was uh, a difficult uh, process. It's too bad. Yeah, and seeing as you are in Canada, yeah. it's, uh, <laughs> it's a problem. <laughs> but listen, why don't you uh, play me another song? Uh, yes, I do have a great song here. I, I don't know how to pronounce it, but I think it's ZXZ. Is it Z times Z? It should be Z. I don't know. Here you go. No one's, no one's corrected me, so I've said ZXZ but before, but no one's ever corrected me, so I presume that's right. ZXZ. Yeah. You think? Fuck yeah, it. Yeah, fuck it. Z- All right. Uh, Zed's... Well, he's from the Ukraine. He's from Kiev. So I wonder if it's like... Zugs. <laughs> oh, Zugs. Because maybe that's a word, you know, like maybe like you, you read it in English and it looks like like nothing, but then like zigzags in, in Ukraine means like, you know, pocket knife or something. Or Molotov cocktail, you know, something like that. Zigzags. Zigzags. <laughs> uh, but I think it's ZXZ. All right. ZXZ and the track's forward. But uh, yeah, I really like this one, Andy. It's really, real good. All right, man. Well, let's check it out. This is ZXZ or, or ZXZ. Or zigzags. Either way, it's a cool track. Uh, it's a track called Forward. Forward. 
And that was Forward by ZXZ. Or ZXZ. Anyways, that's Marco's third pick of the week. So that's a good track. So have you been snowed in yet? Like, is, I mean, do you get snow days where you're like... This is what I'm looking forward to about moving there. Like, because we don't get that here. You, you gotta, you know, you go to work. There's nothing really that stops you going to work here. Snow days really only apply to children. And of course, you know, the, uh, you know, everything's changed. You, you know, mean? the world is changing around us. And I feel like an old man. Cause, well, now, I don't know if it's just that people are so afraid of, of lawsuits. But when I was a kid, we didn't get that many snow days. Like, it was a fucking special thing, you know, during the wintertime. Like, at all costs, you had to go to school. And. I live in town, and so even when it was a snow day, we were still kind of required to go if we lived in town, because it was only like the bus kids. The bus kids are the ones that got to stay home, but we should go. But lately, Mm -hmm. I'm hearing now, um, because my dad used to be a school teacher, but but I'm hearing now it's like, they're fucking getting snow days, like, once it starts snowing even just a little bit, they're fucking calling snow days. It's the same reason why, like, well, especially in, in the town I grew up in, like, they bulldozed my old school, and they built, like, a new one. That's fucking so lifeless And it doesn't even have Like a proper <laughs> playground And it just pisses me off Because like when I was growing up We had like four playgrounds And it wasn't even a big mm. school It was like 400 students There was almost like A different playground For like every two grades And I don't mean like A huge field But I mean you know Like mm-hmm. there's a swing set And some fucking things To climb on And for all the different grades And different sort of sections So like you know The older kids weren't playing In the same park As the as the younger kids Like they had their own Side of the school Kind of thing And then they built a school that's that's combined so it's a high school and a public school and there's like no fucking playground and it's literally just like a fucking jail it's like a cement slab where kindergarten kids are just gonna walk outside and look at fucking high school kids smoking <laughs> and it sucks like i hate it smoking's not cool anymore unfortunately it was back then well it's, it's not, not even a question anymore. if it's cool or not it's just like these are little kids <laughs> you know what i mean like they should, like if i was a little kid i'd want to be climbing on shit and going down slides. Like, I don't want to walk outside and just look at a bunch of fucking loser high school kids. And they are losers. So Jesus, that's a bit harsh. Yeah, no, right, no well. it's true. I fucking... <laughs> high school, man. It's a stupid time. I, look, we were all in high school. We're allowed to We're allowed to hate it, okay? It's a stupid place. <laughs> I didn't really enjoy high school is what I'm trying to say. But. <laughs> that doesn't sound like it. <laughs> Jesus. All right, well, at least your kid doesn't have to go to that shitty school then. Well, that's the thing because, you know, it was always, yeah. it was always the idea that at some point we were going to move back to the hometown. <laughs> like, just... Uh, is that the only school? I mean, is yes. it... So literally like oh, so and and literally the school was the thing that changed my mind because it, it was always it, it was always an idea like look I work from home I do video editing and stuff I can operate anywhere pretty much as long as I have a good internet connection and a computer and mm-hmm. obviously it's a lot cheaper to live in a small town than than the city I mean Toronto like my rent is insane so when I saw the new school they built I was like no I don't I don't want my kid going here <laughs> like I and it, it it's crazy to me to feel that way because before they built that school I would have been happy for him to go to school uh, where I went to school and uh, and now I'm not and so now it's like uh, I don't want to I don't want him to go there just because they don't have a fucking play area like kids need to fucking play yeah, yeah. like it's fucking bullshit like kids need to play and now it's like it starts to snow and they don't even have to go to school because if there's like fucking snow on the ground like if some kid falls they'll think they're gonna fucking sue or something so it's like, oh, you can't let them play. You can't let them fucking have fun outside because, you know, what are they'll like? I, yeah. 
Anyway. Kids are soft these days, man. It's a worry. I think that's where it's going, but, like, I don't want to sound like one of those fucking angry people talking about kids these days, but, I mean, it's not their fault. It's not their fault. I mean, they just want to fucking play. Like, that's what they want to do. Well, I'm almost 40, so I think I'm... As soon as I turn 40, I'm allowed to talk about kids, like, that way, you know? Like, because that's what old people do. You start calling them whippersnappers. Oh, my God. What's that? A whippersnapper? Yeah, that's what, that's what old people call kids. Like, ah, yeah, little whippersnappers. I didn't even know what a whippersnapper is. Yeah. <laughs> the more I say, I mean, that literally is is a thing that they would say but now it sounds kind of offensive now that I say it out loud we, we have a we, we say whippersnipper and that's for uh, that's that's like the Australian term for weed cutters yeah no we, yeah, we have whippersnippers you know, too isn't whippersnipper like a brand name uh, maybe it is I think everybody just people just adopted it I, I don't know maybe it is but uh, we all just call them whippersnippers right. I don't know well, Bye. this is good, the conversation we're having. <laughs> very, very interesting stuff, yeah. See, but that, that's what, we used to call it that in the 80s. Okay, see, 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 Lou, that's 80s talk. Yeah, yeah, so we, we did it, we did it. Uh, listen, we gotta go, okay? Yeah, I know, I gotta go get out of these pants, it's fucking hot. But, <laughs> do you want to play me another song before we leave? One more? Yeah. I got time for one more, alright, well, I guess the last song I'll play then is, before you kick me off the show, is Bart Graft. Everybody loves when I say Bart Graft yeah. <laughs> in my Australian accent. So there it is. And uh, he's got a new one out called Push and Drive 88. Really like this. All right, sweet. Well, let's check it out, man. This is uh, Marco's final track for the week. This is Bart Graft with the track Push and Drive 88.
And that was Push and Drive, 88, by Bart Graft, Marco's fourth pick of the week. Yeah. You got four this time, man, but we got to go. So, uh, listen, it was good talking to you. Uh, happy New Year and all that shit. Yeah, I'm glad we finally got it recorded, and fuck me. And uh, you can go relax. Yeah, Happy New Year to you, buddy, as well. And uh, here's to uh, uh, another awesome year of keeping it 80s, where we never talk about the 80s. And uh, to all of you in the far north hemisphere... Keep it warm and keep it 80s. <laughs> All right, and that was Keeping It 80s with Marco Merrick. Brought to you by awesome Patreon donors Facehugger and Martin Larby, Marco Cranendonk and Corey Valentine and Timothy Pierce, and Starlight Fisher and the Barons of Santa Carla, and Raul Putt and Tristan Waits and Dana Jean Phoenix. Man, the list goes on, and you guys are awesome for supporting the show. Now, let's go chat with Dan Forden. All right. Well, I am here with Dan Forden. The uh, well, ex- explain fully like what your actual like title is. So my current title is audio director, and I work at Netherrealm Studios. And we put out uh, Mortal Kombat and Injustice. And currently, we're in the middle of doing some downloadable content for Injustice Two, which we released in. Uh, I think May of this year. So how has your function changed then over time? Like, are you more of like an overseer now than you used to be? Or has it morphed? A little bit, but um, if you want the the long version, sure, man. Uh, I can give you that. Yeah. So <laughs> in the beginning, um, I was a guy, at, I was at Northwestern University in the computer music master's program. I finished all the coursework and I was kind of working on a thesis, but... I was really much more interested in playing with my band and writing music for that. And then um, I realized I really needed to get a job. And I knew people that were working at Williams Electronics down in Chicago, and they were making pinball machines and arcade video games. So one of the guys, or there's a couple of the guys associated with the program that I was in at Northwestern uh, were working there. So I got in touch with them. It seemed like they... They had an opening, or they could have an opening. So I kind of pestered them a little bit. And it's funny because I went in for an interview that went kind of okay, and I gave them a bunch of... Because I had been working on computer music, you know, back... This was back in 1988, I guess. So in my college and graduate school career, I was working in computer music, such as it was back then. And so I had some kind of weird modern, I guess, you know, computer music pieces that I'd done for classes and whatnot, and I had some music from my band that was kind of like progressive rock funk kind of stuff that, you know, a little bit off the beaten path, and the people there that heard my demo were like, um, yeah, not so much. So, <laughs> so, so then um, Brian Schmidt, who people should probably know who that is, he's a long-time guy in, in um, video game and pinball audio. He worked on the uh, original audio for the Xbox, the original Xbox. He was one of the guys that was work, that was at Northwestern, so I said, um, 
you know, I really would like to get a job there. What do I need to do? He said, look, just make a demo tape of a country tune, a spy tune, and a rock tune. And I was like, oh, okay. So, you know, I went to work and, and I was kind of getting it at that point. It's like, oh, they want, you know, they want to hear stuff that's kind of familiar to them. So mm-hmm. I did a demo and they really liked my demo. So that's basically how I got the job there. So this computer music course, like, I mean, was that a unique thing? Like, I've never really heard of that being a a course. Like, were you at some like innovative school or what was going on there? Well, so undergrad, I was at Oberlin College, which has a pretty world famous music conservatory. And I originally tried to, I originally auditioned to get into the conservatory there as a flute player because I'd been studying flute for a long time. But I was also playing guitar and I played in a jazz band. I was like, definitely not interested in doing sort of the traditional classical route. Needless to say, I didn't have to worry about it because I didn't get in. <laughs> but, you know, I was in the mix, so they offered me lessons with their secondary teacher. So I continued to study flute. I wanted to study music, so I was taking music theory, music history, anything that, you know, I was playing in ensembles here and there. I took an electronic music course, and that was more involved with like old analog synths and then actually like controlling them with microcomputers using basic and i'd never used a computer before i mean this is back in 1981 82 i think yeah 81 82 right so it was like really foreign to me and i gotta say the teacher you know maybe it was me but i did i felt like the teacher didn't really like explain it well for me other people got it so maybe it was me Um, (laughs) but then there was a course in computer music and so i took that and it really you know i I really took to it so this this teacher he had created his own little system and it was basically an fm instrument that you could modify parameters envelopes frequencies carrier modulator frequencies and you could make different sounds and there was like he had a rudimentary language for creating scores you know, play a note at this pitch for this long, that kind of thing. And so I started play, working with that. And one thing that was kind of interesting is that I would put together a score for a piece and I would there, there was a, a way that you could do run sort of quick jobs to test out what sound sounded like. Mm-hmm. But I mean, like I said, this is like over 30 years ago, almost 40 years ago. Once I did a piece, it would be like a two-minute piece. I would basically send off a job to the mainframe computer and then come back the next day to hear my two minutes of music right so it needed to be rendered like so yeah exactly how were you actually programming in the notes like i mean i'm familiar with using you know computer uh music programs now you know like logic uh fl studio things like that where you actually can you you have a visual uh keyboard and you can you know arrange the notes no this was all text text it was all text (laughs) and it was cool because yeah because we didn't have there was no like the first mac just maybe was coming out or hadn't yet come out like right around that time it was also right around the time that the dx7 came out the first digitally controlled synthesizer as far as that was mass produced yeah there was this language called apl which literally stands for a programming language and it was this goofy language that had like you had to have a special keyboard because a lot of the keys would have these symbols and it was all about matrix manipulation so if you think about like an event list of you know notes like a start time a duration a pitch value and then whatever else you wanted to do you could configure it it was actually really powerful for manipulating matrices of your of your note information. So how would you program the sounds themselves? Like if you're doing it all text-based, was there still mm-hmm. preset sounds? Or did you have to like type in like, I wanted to modulate it like this frequency and then you just didn't know what it would sound like until the next day? Like how did that work? Yeah, well, there was a program 
basically, I, I, you know, I really don't remember what it looked like, but I guarantee you it wasn't fancy. It was probably just text. And so the teacher had created this FM instrument, and then there was a bunch of parameters that you could modulate. I really don't remember how we did it, but I know there was a way that we could, you know, I, I would make like a, a score, like of a note, like a whole note. So I could hear that in like a minute. Right, I would basically batch that job off, and I'd hear that in a minute. Like it would render, mm -hmm. but if I was doing like a piece with a bunch of notes and different instruments, and it was like two or three minutes long, that would take overnight. And the kicker was that it was at a sample rate of ten thousand something. Like we would play, you know, we'd have little recitals where we'd play our pieces for each other. And I'm like, man, it sounds so dull. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and eventually, I figured out, I was like, oh, it does. Like because it really the effective, you know, frequency that you're getting is like five thousand something. So. Yeah. Five thousand hertz. So yeah, that's that's that was like the old days. Did doing computer music in that way did that connect in any way to doing music on pinball machines? Did the stuff you learn actually matter, or was that a completely different process? Like once you started working for uh, uh, Williams or Midway, I've never thought about that, but in a way it was because. So in my first several years doing pinball and video games, we were using a proprietary sound chip sound card that had a yamaha fbo1 chip so it's basically you got eight voices of like multiple carrier fm or something like that you could configure different ways but you basically got eight voices of fm you got one eight bit d to a converter so you could have like one drum at a time and then we had this hideous speech chip in the beginning called the cvsd which meant continuously variable slope detection and it was basically like an an eight to one data compression where the signal comes in and if the next sample is like higher than the previous sample then you get a one in the bit and if it's lower then you get a zero and then i don't know if it's the same what it does but basically it had an effective frequency response of maybe two and a half to three k so it was awful and it was almost impossible to get any sort of sibilance out of it and like you'd be cranking up your s's and your f's like to the moon and it still wouldn't come out <laughs> right especially with other sounds and music and things going on but that's what we had to deal with so we did the best we could how did you feel about uh making music that way because obviously if you wanted to join the conservatory and play just regular music mm -hmm. when you joined this computer music program and then started to do it this whole other way where you're like coding and typing in text and stuff i mean did you yeah. did you find it interesting or fun or frustrating i mean like what like what happened it was cool there was something about like my brain just took to it so much easier than actually working with the analog since by the way just a, a quick aside we had a putney vcs3 in that studio it's one of the synths they use on dark side of the moon it doesn't look like a synth it's like kind of a console and it's got a pin matrix and the pin matrix allows you to put pins in there to make connections or break connections between like oscillators and filters and envelope generators and stuff like that and then you like plug things in but what i was gonna getting back to your question about how the computer music like basically text editing how that related to what I was doing in the early days of pinball, we were essentially writing what looked like assembly language in a text editor. And that's how we wrote our music. So like note space C4 comma four, that's, you know, four ticks of a C4. Then you had a bunch of other things. And what was really cool is that you could actually change any parameter of the sound that you had going and then put that into your, into your score. So I, I actually had a lot of fun doing that with, uh, you know, changing like the, the modulation ratios and stuff like that sort of in a musical fashion did you have any particular sound chips 
uh, in the early day. Obviously, now I guess there's there's not really any limitations anymore. I suppose, but you know, when when there were at the time, did you ever have a particular sound chips that you that you liked the sound of more than than others? I'm thinking more in terms of like back in the eight bit and sixteen bit eras because I was listening to a bit of Arch Rivals. Mm-hmm. That's the first game I worked on. Yeah, and that's the one, it reminds me a bit of the sound chip that was in the Sega Genesis, the samples that uh, were used in that one. And, you know, back in the day playing Super Nintendo versus, you know, the arcade versus the Sega, I mean, they all had sort of different kind of sound capabilities. Mm-hmm. Did you ever work with any of those and find one to be better than the other or one that you, you like the sounds of or did that matter to you? Not really, because that's the only one we worked with. And in fact, that was the FM chip that we used so that was those were all fm instruments that we had and we had a pretty decent timbre designer it wasn't exactly a gui well it kind of was i mean it was pretty powerful you could run your score through this thing and then start tweaking it and 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 dial it in the way you wanted so it was actually a pretty good editor so by the time you were working on arch rivals you could now make the music by actually like playing on a keyboard and then like inputting the information or no not until not until we went to a data compression system, so Mortal Kombat 2 was one of the first ones, I think. Right. That And, and the Star Trek Next Generation pinball machine. Oh, okay, that's interesting, yeah, yeah. Those are the first two I think I did, and the data compression system means I basically can go into my studio and play flute or guitar or synth or whatever and like produce music sort of professionally, and then that just gets data compressed into the game, and then we had ways of chopping it up and, you know... Because obviously memory was an, was an issue there too. But before that, it was just all FM-based stuff with, like I said, the 8-bit DAC and the crappy CBSD chip. So did you have to write down the sheet music of what you were doing, or did the computer log it somehow? No, we just typed it in. Like, note, rest, change timbre. You know, you'd basically have this big text file, and you'd have all your eight tracks. You'd basically put a label in that, and then, and then you know, the compiler would figure out what's what, and then... Um, you have to configure it. You know, you, you basically had to set it up. It's like a computer program, basically. Right, right. Well, because we're going to talk a bit about uh, uh, Mortal Kombat. Now, I'm, uh, I don't want to frighten you, but I am like a pretty big Mortal Kombat fan. Oh, that's cool. Good for you. So some of this might get a little bit nerdy. Mm-hmm. I've always loved video game music, like ever since I was a kid, and uh, the sound effects in games and things like that always really resonated with me. Mm-hmm. You know, even back in the early days, I remember like there was like that Mortal Kombat 2 CD and stuff. Like I've always been aware of, you know, game music. 
mm-hmm. which is why it's uh, it's pretty cool to, to get to talk with you. So I was hoping to basically just go in order and then just talk about the different Mortal Kombat games and how the sound sort of changed in the process of doing them. I'm mm-hmm. for me. I'm like 30, well, I'll be 36 in a few days. So Mortal Kombat happened at like the perfect time for me. I think I was maybe like 10, you know, when the first one came out. Mm -hmm. You know, that was a very exciting time. And, you know, I played it on home console. And and so it was always interesting to me because even at that point, not knowing how things were done technically, but but being able to hear that difference, you know, playing the Super Nintendo version and going into the arcade and going, hey, you know, the arcade sounds a lot crisper than, you know, the version that I have at home and stuff like that. And Thank you. <laughs> and the sound effects were um, just more vibrant and stuff, you know, like the arcade was, was such a cool, you know, it was great to play. So in the first Mortal Kombat, you're saying, so it wasn't until Mortal Kombat 2 that you could do it sort of that other way. So how were you programming the sounds? And at that point, were you also doing sound as well as music yeah so in the in the early days you basically one sound guy would do the whole sound package almost exclusively i mean there's a couple games where we collaborated just because we might have had a couple games going on at the same time and it just made sense to split it up but typically one guy would do a game and the game would be you know you'd do it in nine months or so and then sound guys would have probably multiple games to work on You'd have maybe between four and six pinball machines going on at a given time and maybe a couple video games too I mean, this is around the time of Total Carnage, Smash TV, all manner of pinball machines, uh, high-impact football, super high-impact, NARC. Well, NARC was right before I, I started. Yeah, so on the first Mortal Kombat then, so you're saying then it was you did the music mm-hmm. and you also were responsible for sound effects and speech and everything? Like, that was all? Yes, the whole thing. And then people would also recognize you as one of the corpses in the pit, is that correct? Yeah, I'm pretty sure I am. <laughs> I, be- I believe that's true. In the early days, uh, the two big names associated, you know, with the production of Mortal Kombat were Boone and Tobias. Yeah. And then Tobias left after Mortal Kombat 3. So I was wondering, like, in terms of, you know, for, say, the first three games in those early days, what was the dynamic like? I mean, are, were Boone and Tobias, like, considered, like, dual project leads? Is that what the nature of the, the thing was? Or did they have their separate tasks? I mean, how did that work? I think they were co-designers, they were the co-creators of Mortal Kombat. And John was pretty much responsible for the art and the stories and maybe the character design. Ed was programming it and getting it to feel good and like pulling all the different assets together. So the animations, the artwork, the backgrounds. John Vogel was the guy who did the backgrounds. And then I would do the sounds and I would give those to Ed. And, you know, we, we would obviously talk about, you know, he'd show me something and, and I'd say, okay, I'll go make sounds for it. And then he would pull it all together and make it feel good. I mean, that's like sort of the magic, right? So in in terms of that then, so during that time, who did you, did you take direction? Like, did they give direction as sort of like a team or did you even have direction? I mean, how did that work for you? It was all very informal, but mostly I interfaced with Ed because he, I think he had just more to say about how the sound would go. John was more focused on a lot of the visual stuff. But, I mean, there were times when John, he, he definitely put in his two cents. And, and so, I mean, it was all very collaborative, I'd say. Right. So, did I mean, did the atmosphere change at all, like when Tobias left? Yes and no. I mean, the team was continuing to grow, and John wanted to go work on a console game. And I actually ended up working with him when that happened. It was the, the um, Sub-Zero Mythologies game. Right. So, I worked on that with him. That was happening at the same time as Mortal Kombat 4. 
so I, w- I worked on both of those, um, and they were they were somewhat staggered, but it was just different. I mean, we got some new people in. Tony Gosky joined on Mortal Kombat 2. Steve Baran joined Mortal Kombat 3. Dave Michichich, I think, was there with 3 and maybe 4. Mike Turan, I, like, the, the team started to grow because we start, you know, every game we would put more and more stuff in. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. So it would just start to grow and then, like, became a bigger team, but... Through all that, Ed was pretty much, he was like the, the man who was, you know, kind of juggling all the balls and, and making sure everything, you know, got where it needed to get. No, because it definitely seems that way now for, you know, when I see, you know, whatever interviews I do see. But as a kid, I just remember seeing those two names and never really knowing what the, you know, the dynamic was. But speaking, of course, of the music, uh, when I think about the sound of the games, I feel like each one sort of you know especially in the early days they had these sort of distinct kind of personalities and i know like with with mortal kombat 1 there definitely seemed to be more of a like a karate movie kind of influence mm-hmm. and uh there was also these nice like uh, fat bass lines uh as mm-hmm. well uh which is probably like the more memorable things from the, the first game is the fucking like the like that always gets like stuck in my head you trying to accomplish uh with the music for the first game that's funny so just a quick aside the four of us the four original creators me ed boone john tobias and john vogel were invited to do like a mortal kombat 25th anniversary panel at the new york city comic-con just Mm -hmm. um last month and we i got that question at, at the panel um, and it was super cool is that Warner Brothers paid for John Tobias to come out there and be part of it, even though he doesn't work for Warner. So oh, cool. it was nice to like get the band back together for this little panel. It was really yeah. cool. <laughs> so so what I, I'll say what I said then is like I was just trying to do something cool that people would like. This was sort of um, kind of in the beginning of my career at, at Williams and Midway. And um, I had some success trying to write aggressive music. Because that's kind of what I—that's all what I've always liked. I mean, the first album I ever bought was Black Sabbath, Masters of Reality. So that's kind of right. like you know where I started, and then spent a ton of time and still do in sort of the progressive rock vein, a lot of King Crimson and stuff like that. So naturally, that's the kind of, that's like where I would go to like for inspiration and try to bring that kind of element because I thought it was like it's like it's intense music and it's kind of scary and dark and that totally fits the mold of of a dark video game. But then also mix in like a bit of sort of, if you will, Asian spice, like harmonies and melodies that kind of make you think, oh, that's kind of like exotic or Asian or something like that. Right. But not anything really specific. I didn't really want to hit people over the head with it, mm-hmm. but still have it there as just kind of a bit of a flavor. So, I mean, that's really 
that's really what I was trying to do, and just do something that people would like that would go go with what we were that we, what we were putting on screen. I mean, it kind of comes down to it. What are you seeing on screen? What's mm-hmm. happening? What's the action? So I'm just trying to do like what's the appropriate emotional backdrop for that. Right. I mean, I guess that's true. I mean, because it, it does it does the music in that game does really evoke that. I almost hear more of, you know, it's like that karate sort of cinematic kind of score. And I guess the first Mortal Kombat is the simplest in terms of being a straightforward, like it actually feels like a tournament. You know, because as, as the Mortal Kombat franchise progressed, and I love I love Mortal Kombat for this, but it's very over the top. Mm-hmm. And, you know, as each game goes, it gets more and more, you know, the more and more elements get added. The storyline becomes more and more complicated with more magical yeah. characters and all these things. And, yeah. and the first one is, you know, the most down-to-earth, I guess, of all the game, even though there still is a, a four-armed guy, but, like... Right. You know, and and so I always found, like, the music really suited it really well. I think my favorite track is The Pit. I love the, the music from The Pit. I think that one's... Okay, yeah, I know what you're talking about. Did you have any involvement in the localizations, like when they did the console versions of the games? No, um, like none at like, all. I, I think I think we did what we could to give them, you know, what we had, but it wasn't very easily transferable. And and I don't, you know, I've heard like snippets of the the console ports, and and like I don't know, it didn't really um didn't really sound like the original to me. Going back to the you know the differences between the the sound cards and stuff. I think the Sega Genesis version, I mean, a lot of people, and I still sort of argue with nerds about this, and I guess I'll be I'm nerdy about it as well, is people often uh, remember the Genesis version of Mortal Kombat 1 fondly because it had the blood code, right, where the right. Super Nintendo version didn't. Right. However, the Sega version looked a lot worse than the Super Nintendo one, like it played slower and like it didn't have mm-hmm. the audio, but, but the one thing I think that the Sega Genesis did have was its sound chip allowed for a lot fatter sounding bass and beats. Oh, okay. That's the difference that I've noticed in sort of comparing them. Uh, I think it was localized because your name appears uh, in the game. Like it says music. I think it says it says Dan Forden and some guy called Matt Furness, who I imagine is the guy who who did the localizations. Right. And some of the compositions sound so different from the arcade. It's like the 
it's like what happens when someone does their interpretation, right? Like the emphasis is on completely different elements. Right. So whereas, you know, your track, you know, the 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 focus might be on the the melody, like the the, the melody that's going over top of the bass line, the Genesis version might just have this super amplified bass line. Mm-hmm. And and the melody is almost sort of hidden in the background. Right. In some cases I think it actually works pretty well. The Super Nintendo one doesn't sound great it basically just sounds like just watered down arcade version right the genesis is unique enough that it it actually sounds like slightly different almost like remix compositions Uh but yeah i mean some of them are some of them are actually kind of cool but i'm wondering even how the hell they would have done it because if 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 you weren't writing down you know sheet music would you have like handed off a, a piece of paper with just a bunch of notes i mean like how would that have it's entirely possible, and I just don't remember. It's entirely possible that I sent the files of the, you know, the note, the note information, right? And maybe they could do something with that. But I mean, I don't know what kind of challenges they had in creating the, you know, musical scores for those systems at the time. I'm sure the tools were terrible, yeah, <laughs> and the capabilities were very limited. So, you know, I, I just can't really speak to what they had to go through to try to, you know, figure it out and to try to like do it by ear. I don't know. It, de- it just depends that that may have been difficult to do so well let's uh, move on here to mortal kombat 2 uh probably my favorite in the franchise one of my favorite sequels of all time to anything yeah that was a lot of fun I really yeah like mortal kombat 2 to me is it's one of the best sequels i think ever made because it was just it just doubled everything mm-hmm. and just was just bigger and better in every way like and that's what i love about when i think back to when mortal kombat 2 came out and how exciting it was it was just like almost double the characters the colors Mm. were were cooler the fatalities were you know a little bit more intense Mm -hmm. it was just the ultimate you know like everybody had two fatalities now you know like it just Mm -hmm. and the pit the the bird's eye view of the pit when you knock the guy off i mean like it was just such a great sequel and i think Music-wise, it sort of sounded like you were you were still continuing the you know the karate movie kind of motif, but I really felt in part two you started to move into like bigger sounds. You know, there was like crashing cymbals and and orchestra hits and things like yeah. that. Yeah. Uh, so, what was the process of making the music for for that one? Well, that's when I was able to actually create music sort of the way n- normal people do in a studio with synthesizers <laughs> and, and instruments and so I was able to break out the flute and do some stuff there and, and I think I, yeah, I played some guitar on uh, I think it's called The Battlefield it's like one of the first tunes it's basically like The Battlefield that tune is sort of like the MK2 version of The Courtyard mm-hmm. it's got that similar kind of deep fat bass line with a guitar part harmonized in fourths to give you that kind of that's sort of the, the quote Asian feel, and then very dark, of course. Um, and I was able to, you know, had cymbals, you know, hi hat going and putting it through a delay and a flange, and so it got this cool sort of ghostly sound.
so yeah, it was just me just kind of like learning all these new capabilities that I could use to put into the music for the game. So one of the tricks to that is that you know you like with any game you've got memory limitations so i would write the music in this kind of chunky like a b a b prime c kind of form so that i would basically have these blocks of audio and be switching between them like i would mix i would write the whole tune and mix the whole thing and then bring it into an editor and chop it up and then reassemble it in a playlister right so it doesn't hold up to like extended listening but like for the amount of time that you're in a fight it works pretty well in this one i love the uh the track for i think it's called air combat it's for the the tower level with the clouds in the background yeah right That whole tune is is wicked, and of course, this was the uh, the game that introduced the the forest, the screaming forest track, mm-hmm. which was a motif that you revisited, you know, right. several times in, in the future. And that was a that one is as huge with the the fucking bass line and the big like the mm-hmm. big drums. That's in like thirteen eight or something like that, but it sounds but it sounds kind of normal. Yeah, <laughs> I, don't know how, I don't know how that happened, but it's kind of it's kind of fun. And then going back, I, know, I mean, I know obviously without, uh, you know, you had nothing to do with the localizations, but this was an example, I think, with Mortal Kombat 1 and 2, this was, from my perspective, this was at a time when the uniqueness of the different, um, of the different sound chips in the systems allowed for sort of interesting interpretations. And so I, I would say for me personally that the Genesis version of the track, The Tomb, sounds really neat, but it's, it's a totally different emphasis again. It's more about mm-hmm. the bass line and the beat.
Because I can see the value in sometimes when you hear like a different sound chip or something, it can add a different life or a different light to a track. Once Mortal Kombat 3 came out, there was no comparison. At that point, the arcade version was always just 100% superior. Mm -hmm. The console versions just could not do what Mm -hmm. you were doing like on that game. Mm -hmm. Whereas, you know, from my perspective, the earlier ones, they had some unique things in in the localization. Sure. But Mortal Kombat 3 is probably my... Even though Mortal Kombat 2 might be my favorite in the series, uh, just games, Mm -hmm. I think Mortal Kombat 3 is my favorite in terms of your music. I love the music in Mortal Kombat 3. I think it is awesome. Thank you. This one really sounded different. Hmm. Like, I remember like noticing that right off the bat. Like, whereas I feel like Mortal Kombat 2 definitely sounds like an extension of Part 1. Mm-hmm. Part 3 sounded like you were going in, in a, a different direction. I sound like there was like industrial elements, mm-hmm. uh, these sort of like techno bass lines that, yeah, you know, right. you hadn't really done before. And then also these going even bigger using, you know, choir uh, mm-hmm. samples and, uh, you know, the, the church organ and things like that. I mean, a lot of really cool stuff going on in this game. Mm-hmm. Oh, but before we go on, we should also point out that you're the fucking toasty guy. That's correct. <laughs> you are correct, sir. I don't want to move move past Mortal Kombat 2 without saying you are the toasty guy. <laughs> so let's talk about that for a second. And let's not and let's not forget uh, let's not forget friendships and babalities. Who does the voice for Shao Kahn in the early games? Because he's also the announcer in Mortal Kombat 2, correct? So Mortal Kombat 2 and 3, it was Steve Ritchie, who's uh, one of the greatest pinball designers of all time. And I worked on a bunch of games with him. And in fact, he had been there forever. I was playing his pinball machines in the late 70s. And then I ended up, <laughs> and I ended up working with him. And then some of the first stuff that Ed started, Ed Boone started probably two or three years before me. And he worked with Steve Ritchie on Black Knight on, on a, I don't know what a game, but one of the first games I worked on right around the time of our tribals was I did some music for Black Knight 2000. Right. And Ed Boone was the programmer on that game. In the early days of uh, games that had, you know, speech in them, for example, Mm -hmm. um, oftentimes it was like members of the staff. You know what I mean? It wasn't like you didn't go out and hire voice actors. You just got like in-house voices. So I'm wondering, like, has it has it gotten to the point uh, legally or technically where that is a problem? Like, is that still something you can do freely? Just like, hey, someone just comes in and does a voice sample, or, or now is it more like, is there a legal thing where they have to be credited as a voice actor and paid the right amount? I mean, like, how does that work? I think depending on whether you're doing a union or non-union game, you have to adhere to that. Only very rarely do we bring in someone from around the studio if we need a like to mimic something, but it almost never happens anymore. So now, like, the voices have to be, like, cast actors? Yeah. But back then, it was just, you know, hey, let's get Mark Ritchie from Pinball to come over, because he had a great voice, and so he would do, you know, he'd do great stuff. Ed Boon is the voice of Shang Tsung in in, in Mortal Kombat 1, announcing the names and who wins and and laughing and stuff like that. Fatality, Flawless Victory, all that stuff. That was Ed in the first game. And then we got Steve Ritchie to do... Uh, Mortal Kombat 2 and 3, and he's got a great voice. Plus, I you know, pitched it down and put a little bunch of effects on it so it sounded huge. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then after that, 4, 5, 6, 7, maybe even 8, was Hernan Sanchez, who was an artist um, on the games. He was also, I don't know, do you know the game, The Grid? It's like a networked third-person arena shooter, probably about 1998. Anyway, he's the announcer on that, but he does a totally different vibe. Right. It's more like a game show announcer when you guys were doing that were you bouncing ideas because obviously you're you're doing sound design and stuff like that too at this point so Mm -hmm. 
when this guy comes in and says, okay, you're doing the, the voice of Shao Kahn, did you guys already have, like, lines ready? I mean, were you guys pitching things like, say you suck, you know, say things like that? I mean, because obviously Shao Kahn has some great lines. Yeah. Some of them are sort of reworked cool lines from, you know, bad guys from cinema and stuff. Yeah. But uh, definitely, I, I, I always loved that fucking, the Shao Kahn pointing thing, like in Mortal Kombat 2, where he would taunt yeah. uh, the player. Yeah. How did, so how did that work? Like, how did his lines come about? Oh, we would just get together and say, hey, you know, we're, we're going to record the announcer. Who do we get? And I, I don't know. We just kind of decided that Steve would be the one to do it. Who, by the way, he's the one who came up with the name Mortal Kombat. Ooh, there's a fucking claim to fame. Yeah, it was all kind of informal. I mean, we'd write down all the names of the fighters, and then you'd have to win, you know, Ermac wins or, you know, Reptile wins or whatever. Flawless victory, fatality. And then, I don't know if it was in two or three, but you fight Shao Kahn, um, and then we wanted him to taunt you. And I remember, like, one of my proudest moments is the coming up with the line that Shao Kahn would say to you after he beat you. You weak, pathetic fool. Yeah. <laughs> and I was like, that's going to get people to dig into their pocket for another quarter. You weak, pathetic fool. Yeah, no, it's perfect, too. I love the delivery. I, uh, that's one of my favorite lines. I mean, technically, Mortal Kombat 2 and 3, I think, even reused the same sprites of Shao Kahn. Probably. So he does the he does the taunt in both, right? Yeah, so yeah. then I think part three was the one, and this was hilarious because of the localization on the Super Nintendo version. Mm-hmm. Um, one of Shao Kahn's lines is "You suck" in part three, yeah. where he points says "You suck." But because of the speech compression, mm-hmm. and I guess you know on the on the Super Nintendo, obviously mm-hmm. you know when you compress audio down, mm-hmm. the S started to sound like an F. <laughs> That's awesome. And I remember I got the game and I was so excited and we're playing it at my buddy's house and then all of a sudden we're, we get defeated and Shao Kahn's just like, you fuck, like this. And then his dad comes in and he's just like, what the hell are you guys playing? Like he got like yeah. all, <laughs> all mad at us because he thought the game was swearing. Well, a lot of people got mad and that's why we have the ESRB now. Yes. <laughs> that was actually because of Mortal Kombat. You can thank uh, Mortal Kombat for the ESRB. Because I still play, like I will play Mortal Kombat too. Mm-hmm. I'll play all the old ones actually. I like I like going back and playing them. And wow, it's so tame compared to you know yes. when you really when you think about all the controversies that this stupid franchise has been through, and when you actually go back and play, mm-hmm. it's to me. I mean, I will say the later the newer Mortal Kombat's they do push the boundaries in terms of gore. Like some of them, even yeah. some of the fatalities. I'm kind of like, ooh, that's fucking gross. But like yeah. in the early days. The violence is very Monty Python. Too. Yeah. It's not even offensive. It's like Johnny Cage just reaches over and pulls the guy in half. With There's no gravity. Like, it doesn't make sense. It's just sort of right. goofy and silly, you know? Right. And so the idea that it was so offensive is just ridiculous. But how did... Um, how did the Toasty guy come about? Because that is you. Like, that's a picture of you, right? So right. what is Toasty? So while we were developing one or two mk1 or two ed and i had worked together on um high impact football so we used to go there's like a a hallway in the back of williams and a bunch of games would be there so we just go play that every once in a while and it just became a thing we taunt each other while we're playing and then like the football players are approaching the line and i'd be like you're toast i predict you're going to be toast and then it just morphed into i predict toasty (laughs) and then there was a dude that worked on other games and he he said hey you guys should put some of that like goofy stuff that you say to each other in a game and we're like yeah whatever yeah. <laughs> and then i don't know for, for whatever reason it took hold in ed's mind and then one day he said dan what if, what if um wouldn't it be cool if one out of a hundred uppercuts your face comes out of the corner of the screen and says toasty i'm like yeah that, that would be cool <laughs> 
so that's how it happened yeah that's amazing because I, I the toasty guy is is an amazing thing thank you and of course you know it, it evolved over time and became the you know the, the frosty guy and the yep. toasty 3d and all those other <laughs> I think that's what I've always loved about Mortal Kombat as a franchise. Such a weird, it's such an interesting thing to explain because it's my personal like favorite fighting game. I've never actually been great at it. Mm-hmm. I think Part Two was the only one I was ever really good at. Mm-hmm. But I've owned every single one. Yeah, and I've played you know all the side. One. I think the only Mortal Kombat game I have not played of all of them was that Jackson Sonya one. Mm-hmm. But I don't know if people really look upon that one too fondly. But like. No. The, <laughs> but you know, it's. I've always loved the weird humor that the game seems to have, and yeah. even, even in the early days, and it definitely uh, the just in terms of the character design, in terms of the sound, in terms of all of those things that come together, even when, you know, back in the day and, and nerds would, you know, talk and obviously the big competitor, right? Because there's Mortal Kombat and there was Street Fighter. And, you know, in the early days, I think it's very different now, but in the early days, it could be argued, you know, Street Fighter was the you know it had more depth or whatever to the thing but i always loved mortal kombat more i just like the characters more i like the universe of that i love that it has a story mm-hmm. which is just weird you know like because a lot of fighting games weren't doing that they had stories and right. the more mortal kombat goes on the more elaborate the story becomes to and it's so crazy that it's amazing like i love it i just i just love that uh, robots and skeletons and you know demons and all these things cyber ninjas who's in a, who, who's who doesn't love that well, that's what's amazing about that franchise because when i do you know because people will tell me say, oh you should play this fighting game or that fighting game and i'll look at the roster mm-hmm. and like no offense to what other people's tastes are but I'll, I'll load up another game not to name them and i'll just be like who's meant to be the cool guy in this game you know what i mean <laughs> like i'll look at their their roster and i'm just like okay well there's all these kind of weird anime dudes with their shirts off uh, with like long hair and like none of them look cool to me and i boot up mortal kombat and there's these fucking ninjas that are skeletons underneath and you know freezing mm-hmm. people and weird demons and robots and mutants you know like there's just so much cool stuff going on but yeah so Moving along then to Mortal Kombat 3, mm-hmm. just to talk a bit more about the music, uh, because mm-hmm. I think this one has, I think, the score that is the most like listenable um, separate from the game. Like, if I actually just put on a track, and it's almost... I don't know how to um, word this in a way that doesn't sound... like like It almost doesn't sound like a fighting game score. It just sounds like really cool music. Mm-hmm. You know, like with uh, with levels like the church you know, with the choir Oz and the organ and stuff like that. Like, it just sounds like a really good piece of music independent of it being, you know, background music for a game. Mm-hmm. The Roof is a fucking great track. Mm-hmm. Thank you. And my favorite track, I think, that you've ever done is uh, The Subway. I love the, the music for The Subway, man. That track is awesome. That's probably one of my favorite ones from that game, too. That was a lot of fun.
It's so good, and it's uh, it's just that that bass, the the fucking the like it's so good. It's so good that one. Yeah, and then also has like the the lead guitar in uh, harmonized in fourths to get that kind of angular sound. What frustrated me the most as a gamer, uh, and also being a guy who loved the music was uh, if you uppercutted the guy in the subway, you left the level. That's right. You'd go up to the street. And I loved the music in the subway. So when I would play that stage, I would like refrain from uppercutting because I didn't want to stop listening to the cool music <laughs> in the background. That's right. I forgot all about that. This is what I'm curious about, too. Like, what was your... What were you thinking as you were making, like, the Mortal Kombat 3 stuff? Because it is noticeably different from the first two. So were you just experimenting, or did you have an idea? I think it's, again, just trying to do something cool that fits with the visuals and the vibe of the game. Also had, you know, I was accumulating some, you know, newer and cooler axes. Like, uh, I think that's when I started using the, the Morpheus, Emu Morpheus from way back is like their z-plane synthesizer is super cool so a lot of the sounds in that game come from that like some of the horn stuff and uh, i think it's called i call it the bridge on the cd but i don't I'm, it's like literally whacker drive in chicago i think some it's like a, a road like a big a busy road that's kind of under like an underpass yes yeah 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 yeah. but that was that one was fun in particular because it was kind of like big band like techno big band that's the one that has the I'm trying to think now, because uh, sometimes I get the, the street and the bridge confused. It goes like... It's got like a really fast kind of yes. twiddly sort of sound in the background yes. that sort of runs right. through the song. It's yeah. got an ostinato going, and then it's got like a big brass band or something like that playing. I mean, I mess around sometimes like with with electronic music and I find um, sometimes it's about just sitting down and just playing with a sound like it's almost like you can flip through presets on a, on a keyboard. Once you find a certain sound, all of a sudden your fingers just start moving mm-hmm. and, and you and tunes just sort of come to you. Yes, there's a lot of just sort of random walk through patches and, and presets and whatnot. And then something, you know, jumps out at you and then you start noodling with it and then pretty soon you have a tune i felt after three definitely the music in mortal kombat sort of took a different direction Mm -hmm. and i noticed in part four and i I started to notice that the music sort of became like i feel like in mortal kombat three the music was really sort of front and center Mm -hmm. and maybe it's even like to do with the mix of the game or whatever but Mm -hmm. i really feel like the music is most prominent in three Mm -hmm. whereas even when you're playing in like the arcade version and stuff like that it's very like the music is up like they want you to hear it right part four i noticed the music started to kind of move more into the background Mm -hmm. i noticed more 
I don't know, like less emphasis on melodies and more on sort of like kind of complex percussion. Yeah, and t- more texture too, yeah. There was a track, I think, called Snake mm-hmm. uh, on the CD, right? Uh, which I think was Reptiles level. And I, I remember that one standing out to me, but it's it's got very sort of like layered kind of percussion things going on uh, that seem more complex than some of the stuff from previous games. Yeah, and then I was also probably, you know, experimenting with some new samples and some new instruments and just again just trying to you know not wanting to do the same thing again trying to move it forward in whatever direction that is while still trying to be faithful to again what's going on the screen and trying to make it you know pretty driving and some maybe succeeded more than others but yeah it is a more like obscure sound i guess the exception then of course i think this was on the cd i Mm -hmm. think it was also in the game Mm -hmm. the woods track which was right. the the reworking of the uh the screaming forest was very heavy like the bass that was like i sort of the biggest that that uh, bass line had sounded yeah was in the, the mortal Kombat 4 one and that would it starts with that mm-hmm. you know that roar and then just the boom right. boom and it just it's so big and awesome <laughs> I like the original one better. I've, I've gone back to... Actually, I, I probably like the original one and then the remake from Mortal Kombat 9. We'll, we'll talk about that too, obviously, because, uh, you know, once we once you got to there, that whole game was about, you know, uh, I guess re- returning to all the, sc- the old scores you had made over the years, and I loved that reboot. I think, like, Mortal Kombat... Is it technically 9? I call it 2011. Yeah. Do, do we call it 9? Is that what... It is 9. We just called it Mortal Kombat because, yeah, it was an attempt. It was also going back to a 2D fight plane from uh, 3D. For me personally, now, I don't know, maybe you have a different opinion on this, obviously, I mean, because you worked on these for so many years, but, you know, after MK4, then there was the sort of the trilogy of console-only Mortal Kombat games, Mm -hmm. um, Deadly Alliance, Deception, and Armageddon, Mm -hmm. which, I I mean, in hindsight, like, I mean, I've owned them all, I played them all, but I feel like because of their art style, when I think back to them, they sort of blend together Mm -hmm. for me. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, because, you know, obviously each Mortal Kombat up to that point, maybe like part one, two, and three were made in similar ways, but they all had sort of a unique sort of look to them and they all had these sort of different mechanics and stuff like that. Right. And then Mortal Kombat 4 obviously was 3D and was polygons. And then the trilogy that was on console, they seem to use sort of a similar graphic style. And so when I go, when I go back to them, they all sort of feel sort of similar to me. Mm-hmm. For you personally, like, do you feel that they had distinct personalities in terms of like the music that you brought to them or what's your memory like of of them as a trilogy well so one thing to note is that's when it became like way too much for me to do by myself so okay uh and then soon after that see i was working at home as a contractor right for all the other ones and then it was at the beginning of deception where i came back in-house to be the sound department manager right okay and we we worked on that as a team and so we had like four or five guys working on it and i did probably about half of the music and then rich carl and vince ponderelli also contributed music to deception they each contributed about a one or two tunes to uh, deadly alliance but i did the rest i did the rest of deadly alliance but then yeah because then at that point you know we're we're making nba ballers we're doing slugfest we're doing all this other stuff and so we have to like hire more people and get all these games out the door I did not work on Armageddon or uh, MK versus DC. At all? That's correct. Like, you literally were not involved in those projects in any way? Um, I was the sound department manager during Armageddon, and Jim Bonney was the lead sound designer on that game, and he did most, if not all, the music. I don't know if you know who that is. He did the music from that Mafia game that happened in the bayou, like this super cool, like, blues, like, feedbacky blues stuff. There's, like, a playthrough somewhere. You should check it out. It's really great stuff. Yeah, and I never, I never even thought to. I know that... Uh, I think that game was reviewed fairly well, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. There's so many games to play now. It's, it's, it's hard. And he did Bioshock Infinite. As sound department dude, like, did you have any direction or anything in terms like or literally like the music they were making when they were just on their own or did you go like hey maybe this doesn't feel like Mortal Kombat or Jim's job was to make Ed and the the team happy sure so there was no I don't I don't think I I don't I really don't think I intervened at all I mean it was kind of like his gig to do and and he did it and it was great so after that I took a different position in the company where I was actually not even in audio at that point and then Midway blew up and everything changed <laughs> For the reboot then, or Mortal Kombat 9, mm-hmm. which for me, just being a super nostalgic dude and loving, you know, the original trilogy so much, mm-hmm. I loved Mortal Kombat 9. You know, every, every so often there's these games, you know, when franchises, you know, go for such a long period of time. Mm-hmm. And Mortal Kombat definitely, I think, is the most experimental of all the franchises, mm-hmm. uh, and, and especially in terms of fighting games, which is always been the kind of the love-hate thing I have going with Mortal Kombat because I love the franchise so much. Mm-hmm. And with every game, oftentimes they'll like throw out you know, everything that was, was in the previous game and go, oh, let's reinvent it. Yeah. And sometimes those reinventions are cool and sometimes you know, they don't, for me personally, don't work as well as you know, I would like them to. Sure. So what I loved about Mortal Kombat 9 was I liked the acknowledgement to you know, the fans of the series that like, here we're going to take everything that was great about the classic game and fucking just like, amplify it. I loved the story mode. Yeah. I loved that they found a way to sort of craft this plot so we finally see like what the how these how the first three actually fit together. Right. And I and it was so it made me so happy. And of course, revisiting um all the classic levels and the classic themes sure. and the music and stuff like that. So what 
was the process like uh, and how did you feel about revisiting all of these things I, I loved it it was a lot of fun to do a lot of fun to work on and and for the for the in-game music it was uh, rich Carl and myself that did all the fighting music for that game and then we hired I forget how that worked because I think rich handled that but he hired a number of composers to write the story mode music right because I mean again at this point it's like it's just too much for you know a couple people to do we got a kind of a small department that's something that's easily contracted out sure. and makes a lot of sense and the results were phenomenal the people that did great work on that on that game do you do you have a particular piece of mortal kombat music that you worked on that stands out to you or that you're the proudest of there's you know favorites from each one so like from mortal kombat 9 or 2011 whatever you want to call it i think it's the rooftop that one was one of my favorites I think it's like the new version of the sky temple which i think doesn't have any re- doesn't really have any relationship to the original one mm. but those two i felt like those were my best tunes from that game and then uh, on mkx it's the uh it's the sky temple on mkx which especially the third tune because finally we you know it took us long enough but finally we decided hey let's write a different tune for each round wouldn't that be cool <laughs> I love it. It's just, the team over there seems like so uh, like over ambitious, you know, like especially when it came to the the series that were on console, where then they decided like, hey, let's have an adventure game in these games now. Right, that was crazy. Armageddon had fucking kart racing, and there yeah. was chess, and there's all these things, and just like, <laughs> oh man, one of my favorite one of my favorite things of all time is the is the puzzle game in Deception. Right, yeah, yeah. No, it was good. I love that game. We got to get that thing done as like a mobile app. That'd be so fun. You know what I wish? I really liked the the chess mode because I Mm -hmm. I enjoy playing chess. Mm -hmm. And uh, when I was a kid, there was this game called Battle Chess that I really enjoyed. Right. And I wish uh, the the one thing I would have done with that, uh, this is just me being a nerd, is it would have been cool to have a mode that was literally chess. (laughs) Because I think the Mortal Kombat chess was actually... It was sort of like uh, there was a game called Archon, I think, mm-hmm. on 
like the eight bit systems. Like it was really old. And so it was it was something that took place on a chessboard, but it had slightly different rules. Right. And that's sort of the way the Mortal Kombat chess worked. Right. Like it's not real chess, right? And it would have been great if it was just actual chess. Yeah. And then when you moved the piece to the other piece, they would do a little mini like fatality animation when they kill off the piece. Right. Because that would have been cool. I, that should still be something that happens in the future sometime. Just a nice Mortal Kombat chess game uh, would be wicked. But uh, that's got nothing to do with anything. I'll bring it up to Ed. Yeah, do it, man. He'll <laughs> love it. You guys need more to do. Right. And your title uh, on the team now, do you oversee like the sound effects? Are you an overseer? No, you know, I'm more of an of a individual contributor at this point. So Rich Carl, who I've, who I've uh, referred to a couple times, he's actually the sort of the managing audio director at NetherRealm. And I'm an audio director as well, just because I've been around forever. So my... Uh, responsibilities in the games that we've been putting out in the last couple of years are writing music and then kind of audio directing all the character interactions so I work with sound designers you know I, I, I basically I'm like the bridge from the game designers to the sound the guys that actually are designing the sounds and so I figure out what, what sounds do we need how do we need to slice them up so that they work interactively how many versions do we need? And then I make movies for those guys to go off and make their awesome sounds. And then I implement them into the game, into the script code. Okay, okay. Because, I mean, I will say, as far as the franchise goes now, I think, you know, when I mentioned before, you know, the old rivalry mm-hmm. with, uh, you know, the other games, uh, you know, Street Fighter and these sorts of things, that Mortal Kombat was was often seen as, you know, like the simpler one or it wasn't as complex as the other ones. But definitely now, mm-hmm. and especially since Mortal Kombat 9, which makes me happy as a Mortal Kombat fan. Like, I truly feel that not only are these games cooler than the other ones, Mm -hmm. but they also, you know, they can compete now in terms of being, like, complex fighting games that can actually be, like, played a turn. Not that I'm a tournament-level dude. I'm actually terrible, which is the best Mm -hmm. part of my love for Mortal Kombat, Mm -hmm. is, like... (laughs) I buy all of them and I play them, but I'm not actually good at it, really. I just enjoy it. I've always just enjoyed mm-hmm. them. But I, what I love about the the new Mortal Kombat's as well, besides, you know, obviously the music and the whole, the atmosphere of the games is that the sound effects have become way more chunky and and visceral in the in the past few iterations. Like when you're playing on a mm-hmm. on a good sound system, I love how fat the punching sounds are. Yeah. Like it just sounds so awesome. Like every punch and every kick is just so, yep. yeah, it's great. The guys that we've got doing the sound design for this game are just so good. I mean, it blows my mind. I don't know. Honestly, I'm, I'm not doing very much sound design at all at this point, and I just don't know how they do it. Right. <laughs> it's like they got some magic going on. It's so cool to, like, you know, I'm always excited to send stuff off to them, you know, to work on. I'm like, okay, I can't wait to hear what this is going to sound like. Plus, they're working with some of the coolest visuals and, and sort of animations that that you can that around you know the guys that are doing the particle effects for our team are so good also so it's just like it's just it's just really great to be working with such a high powered high functioning talented group of people so i guess like once you 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 know you send them away to sort of do their work and they're busy like uh, implementing their sound effects with apl so uh, what's happening <laughs> over there that would be funny <laughs> i don't think apl exists anymore <laughs> Here's a weird question. Mm-hmm. When the movie came out, mm-hmm. I mean, I know you guys had nothing to do with it, but I mean, like, you know, there's the Mortal Kombat movie, and obviously the song was a huge thing. Yeah. Right? I mean, like, the Mort- you know, the Mortal Kombat song yeah. uh, was a big deal, and it's what a lot of people associate. I mean, whenever I bring up Mortal Kombat to people, they always mention, you know, the soundtrack to the movie. Yeah. I mean, was there ever a thought in anyone's minds to 
implement or sort of direct the music to sort of represent like what was happening in the film just because of its popularity like was there ever even an idea in the studio to be like eh, why don't we make one of the songs do the like was that ever a thing or was it just completely distinct um it was completely distinct however i some of the stuff in the movie some of those tunes i was like man these are great i, want, I wish i written stuff like that and so it probably inspired me to write cooler stuff hopefully I remember one tidbit was that I think John and Ed at one point because there was communication between Threshold which is the company the production company that made the movie they kind of needed to make John and Ed happy so at one point someone said hey it would be really cool if you just grabbed like some random sound from the game and had it in the movie just to kind of connect the two so they grabbed like one of Raiden's gibberish <laughs> yells that he does when he does like a, a Superman or a, or a lightning thing. Well, okay. Right? All right. Not to, just so we don't forget. Mm-hmm. What is he saying? Like, who who came up with fucking Aribabale? Because that's the way I hear it. It's just that Aribabale and there's a Aribabaka. There's like kind of two versions of it. Aribabale! <laughs> What what is that? Yeah, that's uh, that's just some gibberish. Uh, one of the guys there <laughs> came up with. And, and what about Liu Kang's bicycle kick? Same deal. Like yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's you know what though. I'll tell you. You know, Mortal Kombat the movie is still probably one of the best like video game adaptations of a film. Despite it, mm-hmm. it's a cheesy movie, but it's yeah they did a good job of at least uh, you know interpreting you know the game and because right. I was I was young I think I was maybe in grade nine when I saw it so I was very excited when I came back from the theater and I'll tell you those moments where they tied the game to the movie mm-hmm. were the moments that got me the most excited like when when Liu Kang kicks reptile into the statue or whatever nonsense they came up with and then the statue comes to life mm-hmm. and you hear a sample from the game you hear Shao Kahn's voice go reptile yeah yeah right and then he comes right. to life dude when i was when i was a kid it was that sound drop of reptile right. <laughs> like and it was amazing like that to me even though the reptile in the movie has no bearing or relation to the one in the game right Just that dropping in that sample. And of course, I guess Ed Boone must have had to record Get Over Here and Get Down Here for mm-hmm. them. Yep. Or we just sent the sample we had. Uh, you know, actually, no, I think he did record it. I think he did. Right, because they would have to do a Get Down Here because uh, right. Scorpion uh, makes Johnny Cage get down there. <laughs> and that's it. <laughs> we actually, Midway flew us out for the premiere in Hollywood. And so we saw the movie at Man's Chinese Theater. And then we went to the after party and we met Christopher Lambert and... Robin Shu and like all the all the people that were in the movie. It's pretty cool. That's fun. Yeah. Anyways, man. Well, we can probably uh, wind this down, mm-hmm. but uh, I want to thank you for talking to me, man. This is really cool. Sure. It's been a pleasure. Yeah, I grew up uh, with Mortal Kombat. It was my favorite thing. It's one of my favorite franchises of all time, man. It's up there with you know Zelda and <laughs> things like that. I mean, it's every time a new one comes out, I'm always excited to play it. And uh, definitely the the technology of them has improved like just so much. I mean, the, the last game is probably the best looking fighting game there is, isn't there? MKX. Yeah, it's so like it looks so good. It really does. I mean, and yeah, just some of the stuff that these people come up with really blows my mind. It's like, what are they going to do next? It's for, like I said, it's really fun to work in that environment and be challenged by some of the cool stuff that these people come up with and, and to be able to contribute. 
you know, as, as we can. Because you, you mentioned, obviously, about playing flute and stuff like that. I mean, like, do you play other instruments, like other physical instruments? Um, I played bass for quite a while. I haven't played much lately, but I play bass and guitar. I don't do a lot of, you know, really any performing. I mean, a little bit here and there. My daughter and I, you know, we play at the, at the block party every year, you know, play a couple songs on guitar and sing together, stuff like that. Yeah. <laughs> she plays violin, she sings, she plays guitar, too. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. So she's uh, taking up the, the musical uh, heritage? Yeah, we'll see. So far, so good, yeah. And uh, finally, what the hell is the Fish of Destiny? Ah, that's the band that I was telling you about. My, my weird, like, <laughs> art, punk, not, no, art, funk, rock, progressive rock band. We played a couple gigs around Chicago. We were there for you know, a year and a half, two years, something like that. Played a gig in front of six people one time. <laughs> <laughs> Those are important, though, man. Yeah. Those are uh, start important developments. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So the, does any of the the music still exist from your the bands you played in? I have a CD of that of stuff that we recorded. Uh, it's never been released and probably shouldn't be. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I did play in a band called Cheer Accident, which is like got a thirty year lifespan. I mean, they're still going strong. I played with them. I played bass with them between nineteen like nineteen ninety two to ninety four something like that. And I am on definitely one. One album, I'm like the only bass player on it, and then a couple others, I'm I'm mixed in with some other people. But they're great. They're like a they've become a, like a Chicago institution, and it's I guess it's progressive rock, but it's even that's like kind of too nar- that describes it too narrowly. You know, it's like you go you, you listen to an album, you go to a show. It's like you might not like everything, but it's going to be interesting, and some of it's going to be some of it's going to blow your mind. I mean, it's really pretty interesting stuff. And uh, Tim Jones, who's the who's the main musical force behind that he's a pretty amazing musician so i'm i'm lucky that i was you know able to play with him for a while yeah yeah that's cool well uh, we can end this with a really trite and terrible question because since you're a member mm-hmm. of the mortal Kombat team i might as well ask you uh some mm-hmm. cheesy typical question but uh who's your favorite mortal Kombat character man oh god um <laughs> 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 uh, i think now it's probably cassie cage but back then obviously she wasn't around I think I gravitated. It was it was among like Raiden, Johnny Cage, and Liu Kang mm. um, back in like the very first one, right? You know, it's like Scorpion and Sub Zero are probably like you know the favorites of like ninety percent of the people in the world, and they just never really resonated with me that way. So mm. I'm definitely uh, an oddball in that regard. Sorry, the, the correct answer was Scorpion. <laughs> See, that that's the... what I'm talking about. <laughs> Cool. All right, man. Well, listen, it was great talking to you. Mm-hmm. Uh, nice to meet you. Obviously, you uh, continued success. Thank you. And all and the too. mortal. Co- I mean, you guys are doing fine. You- <laughs> like you need my help, but uh, well, you're you're important because you're a fan. So thanks for being a fan. Well, I'll keep buying them, man. All right. I uh, I want to see where this story goes. And uh, yeah, thanks for talking. All right, man. Take care. And that was Dan Forden. That was really cool to be able to talk to him. Like, I, I'm probably bugging him now because I keep on messaging him going like, Hey, you know, thanks for being on the show like a nerd. Like, I don't have anything else to say to him. But I just... <laughs> I was just really happy that he did the show. I thought that was really cool. And that's uh, that's it for this week. So I just want to finish off thanking my lovely uh, Patreon Pattersons. There's Stu M, Night Raptor, The Rosconian, Simon Norberg, Matthew Lister, Dougie Fresh, Bobby B, Cunning Corvid, Roman, Joe and Lando, and Kai. Thank you, guys. Those are my lovely $5 Pattersons. Uh, listen, check out BeyondSynth.com. Nope. Uh, well, yeah, but no, but... <laughs> 
Alright, give me a moment to remember how to do this show. Listen, guys, thanks for tuning in. Tune in next time. And, uh, yeah, man, this is uh, this was Beyond Synth, alright? So you have a lovely day, and, uh, yeah, listen again to Beyond Synth, the best synthwave chat show there is. Beyond Synth, please visit patreon.com forward slash Beyond Synth. And don't forget to check out Beyond Synth on Facebook, Twitter, SoundCloud, YouTube, and Instagram. If you want to submit your music for the show, please email it to beyondsynth at gmail.com. Have a lovely day.